Rebellion, Revenge and Redemption. Welcome to a very special edition of Marvel vs. Marvel. It's usually the podcast where a comedian who has never read a Marvel comic book before in his life watches a Marvel movie or TV show and then quizzes a second comedian. This one's a Marvel expert. This one was taught to read using Marvel comics. Uh, But it's not that today. It's a special edition today where we're going outside of Marvel movies to look at Spawn from 1997 to tell a very, very key, important moment in the history of Marvel and how we got from where it was in the 60s to where we are today. This is a big confusing, interesting, convoluted one, and I cannot wait for it. My name's Rob Holden, I'm a writer, I'm a comedian, and I'm the Marvel expert part of the equation. Joined on this journey, because it's his journey, really, the man that's powered by ignorance, Mr. Will Preston. Hello! Yes, I am powered by ignorance, fueled by it. Uh, Sometimes I fire it back at people. (laughs) You fire ignorance back at them. I take your ignorance on board, and uh, I'm an ignorant rubber. (laughs) <laughs> your ignorant glue um this one will is just different it's i mean we, oh, we yeah. stepped outside of marvel in the past to look at superman to look at the birth of the superhero as an idea um and how the most famous and very first superhero of all time kind of uh created the 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 form and the medium that marvel would spawn out of huh? spawn out of this hey. time we're stepping outside of marvel to tell a, a, a really fundamentally important story is this going to be someone's favourite movie of all time? Do people remember the Spawn movie? <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot of love for it. I don't think there's a lot of love for it from me and Will, but that's not the point. We have a proven track history record of taking dodgy movies and turning them into phenomenal Marvel versus Marvel episodes packed with history, trivia, and context. It's exactly what we're going to do in this episode because... Coming up, we're going to go behind the scenes on the making of a brand new major superhero movie in the 90s. We're going to look at the very first African-American to play a major superhero in a major movie. We're going to go behind the page to learn about the Marvel Rebellion of 1991, (laughs) when all of the top stars at Marvel Comics... Walked out on the company en masse the same day. We're going to look at the birth of a brand new comic book company that gives Marvel a run for its money and helped nudge it into bankruptcy. We're going to take a look at the collapse of Marvel Comics, the man that might have made it all happen, and then we're going to deep dive the hellish history of Spawn, his battles with heaven and hell, his powers, his enemies, his deal with the devil, and so much more. Stat and pack this one. I know this isn't something you ever anticipated we do, Will. Um, and I know it was not your favourite movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, there were parts I liked and parts I hated. Yeah, there's some fun parts of it. And I think some yeah. of the looks of it is incredible. But it, it's it's the only time we're going to get the chance to tell such an important story about Marvel Comics, such an important moment in the history um, of all all American comic books, all Western comic books. It's a, it, it, Image Comics is just a vital thing for us to learn about. If no, we've got to go on a hellish journey uh, to get there. Um, and speaking of hellish journeys, <laughs> um, I've had one. I had a colonoscopy this week, Will, um, and that was... Mm, that is that is. Have you you have you ever had a colonoscopy? No, it's it's not something I plan to have too soon either. 
well, you hope not. Crush your fingers. Um, yeah. Anyone, anyone out there notices something different with their body? Um, it's uh, I know it's very difficult in the UK to uh, can be yeah. difficult in places to get a, a GP appointment, but it's really important that you do. And crossing, that's something I uh, went through. Crossing my fingers and my butt cheeks. I never have to do. That. Yeah. Well, my um, I, I had said something. I had some signs and symptoms, and my mom went through bowel cancer in the last two years. Ooh. So there's a big family history. Um, there yeah. and that got me uh, that got the doctor's attention and so off we went for this is all the test and off we go for a colonoscopy to make absolutely sure um so the process is <laughs> you have to <laughs> you have to like have this very odd restricted diet for a few days you can't have any seasoning in your food you can't have any sauces no um, you can't have any alcohol oh. um you can't have any fiber you can't have any fruit or veg whatsoever bloody hell um, it's like plain uh, chicken and fish, plain rice, plain white bread only. Um, it's a very eggs. It's a very dull couple of days, and then you have to fast for a whole day, nothing, nothing whatsoever. Mm. Um, and then at the end of that fasting day, you have to drink two liters of powerful laxatives, <laughs> and that's that's when I was rewatching Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> I chose this moment because there's nothing else I can do. You are. It was um, eight hours of pooping myself rotten. Yay! And it was just running to watching Spawn. Five minutes of Spawn. Click pause. Run to the bathroom. Come back. <laughs> five minutes more of Spawn. <laughs> click pause. And somehow the experiences seem like they matched up. <laughs> it just felt appropriate while I am flushing laxatives through my system to watch this hellish Spawn movie um, at the same time. Uh, and then and then off you go. Um, first thing in the morning, I was off to the hospital uh, to spend an hour having miles of camera cable uh, ferreting around inside myself. What an experience. It's just bizarre. And to get to... to so they can get around in there, Will. Mm-hmm. They, they they pump you full of air. <laughs> they, they pump air up your bottom. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ease the passage. It's the most bizarre experience you'll ever go through. It's not particularly pleasant. Uh, I'm glad to report after all of that, uh, the all clear and uh, discharge from the hospital, which is very good. Very um, good, very good. And the waiting room experience at the end, the recovery period is they wheel you into this no curtain, open plan like ward, <laughs> and they just sit you there and you go um yeah i didn't have any sedatives at all no no painkillers nothing um because i'm a real man um and then they say your recovery time is to uh just pass the gas and air that's been inside you naturally so you're just in a farting a, a massive farting ward full of people there's nurses trying to do their no. very hard job and you, there's nothing you can do but just let rip for like half an hour and everyone in the ward is the same it's so weird such a bizarre experience but getting yourself checked out is very important if you notice something strange and odd that's it's just a little change in your body make sure you talk to a gp um talk to your doctor and get it sorted out um and my thoughts and prayers go to everyone without a national health service because yeah. ours is incredible um looked after me very very well i'm very pleased with all that 
so yes, uh, yes, that's to come in your future, Will. As, I mean, to be fair, most people are going to have one at some point in their lives. Oh yeah, I'm expecting loads of horrible things to happen to me later in life. I mean, I'm looking forward to retiring. I'm looking forward to what adventures I'm bringing forth to the life of Will Preston later on. But oh my God, there's going to be an awful lot of rubbish, isn't there? <laughs> awful lot. Of, it, I mean, I mean, death for one thing. That's and before that's that, you have to wear these little canvas uh, canvas shorts with a slit at the back, and while the, while the nurse leads you into a small room and and gets the cable ready, it's so weird. And before we crack on with the episode, speaking of weird things, um, you might have noticed mm. you at home, you at home, some of you might have noticed adverts playing, interrupting <laughs> our shows in the last week or so. Um, <laughs> intrusive ads right in the middle of me yeah. and Will talking. We apologise. We had no idea about this. This popped, is out, not, popped out of nowhere, didn't it? It's not something that we actively did. We don't think those kind of adverts are good. Right? Mm. This podcast needs money to survive. At the moment, we make it through Patreon. It may be a point in the future where taking on sponsorship and adverts is going to work for us, right? But we will, I don't think we'll ever do that intrusive advert thing that just interrupts the flow of a podcast. Because I hear it on podcasts and I hate it. Um, mm. And we, I just, so big, big thanks to listeners Tim Drew, um, Phoenix Phil, and Phoenix Phil's little lad, Luke, um, who all got in touch to let us know, hey guys, this weird thing keeps happening. Uh, <laughs> is that meant to happen? And they were all super nice about it. Like, they were all like, every one of them was like, you have to make money. We're not telling you can't make money, but is this how you want it? Is this what it was meant to be like? Um, Tim do got in touch with us first, and uh, we kind of jumped on it. And I thought I'd f- solved it. It's confusing. The Podbean dashboards, who are a host, are slightly confusing. I thought I can I yeah. solved it, um, and then later on, Phoenix Phil dropped us a line and said that his son Luke, who listens to the show every night. Before he goes to bed, um, Luke had heard some of these weird adverts as well and mentioned it. So uh, thanks to Luke shining the bat signal into the sky and alerting us it was a problem, I managed to do a proper deep dive into all the settings and found the right button to turn the adverts off. And I don't think we ever clicked that button to turn it on. We, I, I've but, never seen it. I've never seen it. No. Oh, well, I, I, I've seen the option to like put the timings where the adverts are, but it's like I've never clicked on or seen anything. It reminds me of a problem, a podcast I really love. They had an issue where well, they do have adverts anyway, but one of the adverts that popped up was to like buy and sell gold and it was really suspicious adverts and they were like we have no idea how these adverts pop up i don't know why they're popping up for our adverts we wouldn't want that and every now and again they keep joking about it when they get adverts anyway buy gold sell gold (laughs) (laughs) um i'm glad you got it all sorted uh in time for april because april will it's the versiversary. It it's is. our third anniversary. Um, three entire years of doing this show, baby. Um, and as ever, the versiversary is stacked and packed with cool episodes. April 3rd, we're releasing an episode of our spin off show, Obscure Marvel, where I ne- try and make Will quit the podcast on a monthly basis. <laughs> um, that's where me and Will uh, dive into the trash cans of the Marvel Universe to find the most obscure and ridiculous moments in Marvel history. Um, the one we're releasing on April 3rd uh, involves Spider-Man in the 1970s meeting Bill Murray, John Belushi, and fighting alongside the cast of Saturday Night Live. There's also a samurai that can teleport. It's a mad story. Um <laughs> 
Later in the month, we're going to be in April. We're going to be releasing um, one of our first ever mini bonus shows on, from Patreon, which is where I try to explain to Will the Spider-Man Clone Saga, uh, which again nearly drove him insane. Um, mm. But the next, the next big main show episode, um, April tenth, we're taking one of our prized full-length bonus episodes. We're going to take it from behind the Patreon paywall and we're going to release it to everyone to celebrate our anniversary. This one is going to be Wolverine Enemy of the State, a massive Marvel event where Wolverine gets turned into a brainwashed agent of Hydra and sets about to trying to kill every superhero in America. Wolverine goes up against all the X-Men, the Fantastic Four and more. It's an epic story that also introduces the most deadly Marvel villain of all time. The key concept of this podcast is that I have an inherent, overwhelming amount of knowledge about Marvel um, and comic book superhero uh, stories and characters and all that. And I approach a lot of these movies and TV shows with that knowledge inherent and built in. And Will Preston, the yin to my yang, comes at these uh, as a wide-eyed, fresh-faced little cherub um, with no <laughs> sense of how to cross the road properly without an adult holding his hand. So, Will, we... <laughs> want to ask you sorry i'm sorry it's the look on his face when i throw those yeah. in it's the best thing about the job um have you ever we're going to go into the mind of a muggle now um have you ever heard of spawn before yes. 1997 i i haven't heard of him before 1997 no but i remember but you remember this movie no but i remember people in school talking about it mostly specifically the people in school who could get away watching a film like this at the age of 10 and 11. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember them talking about it going, oh, it's really cool. He's like, he's, he's from hell and he kills bad people and all this. And uh. and I'm just like, okay, that sounds cool. I probably won't be able to watch it though. Because like, when you're that age, you're very limited with what films you can watch and get away with watching, if that makes sense. It is impressive that what, that what kind of came across is, and mm. what was cool to pre-teens yeah. and teens as well is this idea of a badass you know from hell like a hero from hell and yeah. killing bad guys being you know a, kind of a key part of spawn's appeal and that it, really is it just um, sounds cool it sounds cool yeah so you you were uh hadn't like seen the posters or the trailers or anything but you'd heard kids in the playground talking about it it's the original kind of um social media I, I remember, I think I saw a poster, I, th I think there was Chitter Chatter, but very, lim I mean, incredibly limited. I mean, superhero films in the 90s weren't a massive thing apart from Batman. And yeah. this was a kind of thing where it's like, oh, okay, so it's like a it's like a superhero thing. You know, there wasn't enough of an appetite for it, per se. Yeah, no, there wasn't. It, there, there hadn't been. It's interesting how, at that stage, despite the success of Batman... Batman obviously did inspire some of these other movies to come out, but nothing really massive. Like, no one was putting thought and effort and attention into it. I think it's just the way that movies were done back then mm. compared to now um, in terms of how it was brought up. So have you ever come across any of the Spawn... Did you come across the animated series or uh, the video games? I I, heard, I think I heard about the video game at one point, and it, that was in passing or while reading a gaming catalogue or something or a gaming magazine. The cartoon... <clears throat> I didn't hear about back in the day, maybe in passing, but like I really want to see it after recently, after people recently pointed out it's actually really good. Oh, and critically I, acclaimed, yeah. And I watched a trailer for it and I was like, the animation looks beautiful and 
and and and uh, what's his name? The guy doing Spawn is uh, ah Keith David. So I was like, oh yeah, I have to watch oh, it. That's now, right, because Keith David's just a badass. So what about? I mean, did 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 Image Comics? Is that something you'd ever heard of? Um, things no. like Wildcats, Savage Dragon, um, any of those kind of um, Young Blood. Nope, I didn't uh, hear about Image. Didn't even know about Image Comics until I picked up my first compendium of The Walking Dead, uh, sure, 2012. Yeah. yeah, interesting, fascinating. Um, uh, it's it's it always interesting when this character that is, I don't know, obscure isn't the term really because of all the massive success that the characters had, but it, but it, it's almost it, it's a lot more centralized in America, I think. Yeah. Than it being, uh, although all the things kind of were available over here, um, it didn't quite permeate the um, the pop culture consciousness over here um, like Spawn and Image did in America. Um, I, because whilst we did have a rise in comic book shops, it wasn't it wasn't quite a massive boom in comic book shops like mm. America got. Um, the industry was massive over there in the late eighties and the early nineties, and that's really what gives us this character um and this story and and then this uh, this movie indeed and speaking of movies <clears throat> yes let's head on over to the man <laughs> with all the answers the man that walks the dirty streets of hollywood digging up the dirt with his shovel on his back it's mr hollywood and what has he got for us uh, this week mr hollywood oh have you ever been to hollywood it, it, no. is, it is it is filthy. Uh, I, I remember yeah. going to LA, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's fun, I'm, it's sunny, but it's filthy. All the movies about Hollywood are about death, murder, corruption, and horrible <laughs> stuff, and, and it's made by people in Hollywood. So uh, I know it's like it's like it's not even an insult anymore. It's just like yeah, we know. Deal with it. So. As I said earlier, like the 90s were a bit of a weird decade, mixed, if you will, for the superhero film genre. After the success of Tim Burton's Batman in 1989, uh, a lot of lesser-known superhero properties were adapted into film. Uh, these days, superhero films have such a high demand and success that almost as many superhero films as released in a year as they were for the entire 90s. So we're talking... Amazing. Amazing, <laughs> amazing scale. So... Before I go into the budget and uh, the, 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 the dollar, the making sense of the dollars and cents behind Spawn, let's make sense of the dollars and cents, and at the same time, go through a bit of go for a bit trip down memory lane. I don't know if we will ever handle any of these films in the future, but let's go. Let's take this opportunity. I have immediately have issue with some of these things you're talking about. Okay, okay. Well, I, what I'll what I'll say, I, I, they're, they're all appropriate for us to talk about, but I wouldn't class. There's so many of these I just would not class as superheroes. Oh, they I are wanna, comic book properties. I want to sure. hear. I want to hear. I want to hear your complaints as we go along. Well, that was that's my main complaint. They having having these described as superheroes is not always appropriate. Um, Absolutely, these okay. are comic book action adventure characters. Sure. Okay. First of all, 1994, probably a massive <clears> name. <throat> the Mask. Yes, Jim Carrey's The Mask was indeed based on a comic book. I would class him as a superhero. Would you class him as a superhero? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Why is he no. not a superhero? Um, well, it's an action-adventure character that puts on a mask and goes around on a mad killing spree. Oh, okay. The, I, I know <laughs> the original comics were darker. I never read them, but wow. Yeah, okay. no, it's just a guy going around on a killing spree. And then a different character picks the mask up at the end of that story, and we get a different person putting the mask on and going on like a killing spree. It's just... 
you know, it was kind of, it was kind of, um, the gore is what attracted people to reading the mask, which yeah. is how it's, pr- that's, which is just for the rest of the world. Uh, Will's talking about the movie, the, the Jim Carrey movie, the mask. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, I, I, are, are the old comics worth reading? No. <laughs> anyway, no. The, the mask, 1994. Mask. What? The mask, mask, mask. <laughs> One of the films that solidified Jim Carrey as a incredible household name. Incredible movie. Um, it spawned a huge crush in me on um, Cameron Diaz. Oh, um, it was a, such a fun, funny movie. I remember it was back in the days when going to the cinema was such like a, a held back treat for yeah. my family that I would have to. I, get as much as I could out of these kind of character movies by the tie-in um, comic book or the yeah. sticker album or the magazine about the movie. And I, I got a bunch of those yeah. in the yeah. in the weeks and months it took until I could finally see the movie. And I, I don't know whether I went to the movie. I definitely remember seeing it for the first time, but whether that was at the cinema or on a, on a video, I don't know. I, I was seven, and I was actually quite freaked out by the mask looking at it as a kid when I first saw the effects. They just freaked me out and then eventually yeah. I got around to seeing it and it was like oh no this is actually really funny and really good but I remember as time as a kid I'm bloody terrified of the appearance of it anyway the mask was made on a budget of 18 to 23 million dollars quite big you know for its time uh, box office 351.6 million that's yeah. insane big massive crossover appeal um, in that it's something that kids and families could go to yep same year we had The Crow <clears throat> That's a superhero, isn't it, Rob? I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pitch the crow as a superhero. No. Okay. Okay. He doesn't have a costume. He doesn't have a mask. He doesn't have a secret identity. He's, you know, he's a. It's again, it's a dark kind of action sort of adventure story. Yeah. And he comes back and he goes about killing people out of revenge. So killing more- people out of revenge. It's very rare. I'm going to say you're a superhero. <laughs> like Punisher's not a superhero. He kills people out of revenge. Okay. So budget for that one similar twenty three million box office ninety four million still juicy still good yeah, Same, starring um, Brandon yeah, Lee the who, who unfortunately uh, died on the set famously died on the set of that film and do you know how he died uh, he got <coughs> shot with a supposed was it a a, a gun was loaded loaded with a real bullet instead of a blank bullet and they just shot it's him. it's either that or it was a blank instead of a stunt thing like we've seen this. In this Alec Baldwin situation, um, mm. you get shot with a blank, and there's actual, you know, metal in there that will hurt you. Yeah. Um, and that is the plot of one of his father's movies. In I think it's Game of Death. Yeah. Bruce Lee plays an actor that fakes his own death, and part of the fakery is the 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 death is that someone put a real bullet in place of a fake one on the set of the movie. So that what a coincidence that was. Bloody hell. Next up, The Shadow. I never saw this one, did you? Yeah, I love this movie. Absolutely love this movie. Love it, love it, love it. Right, I might have to stick that on the list. Uh, budget was $40 million. So almost twice as much as the other two. Uh, box office, $48 million. Did not do well. It did not <clears throat> I, do... I can't, I can't believe that. In my mind, this was a massive movie. Who was in um, that again? Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, as close as we get to him playing uh, Bruce Wayne Batman. Um, okay, it's it's you know it's in nineties and there's an element of camp to it as there should be yeah. because they're adapting this pulp hero from the uh, the bygone age, the sort of pre comic book age. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, next up, nineteen ninety five, we have Tank Girl. 
I tried to read the first issue of Tank Girl. It, I got I got why people like it, but it's not for me. A bit too zany we, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just tracked my 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 best friend uh, Eve is a huge Tank Girl fan, um, based on the movie, and I managed to last year track down uh, and a first edition original copy of the first appearance in mm. the forgotten um, British uh, black and white indie magazine that it came out in. Oh, um, very good. And yeah, I mean, it's just very 2000 AD. You know, it's yeah, just like a very. lot of those characters that. It, 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 you know, again, it's not written in in a modern comic booky American comic book kind of way. It just isn't. It's it's kind of a fun little five page adventure. Yeah, um, lots of over the topness, and they'll do it again the next. Week. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's come on um, since it's been turned into like kind of an American property. Oh, absolutely. Well, the budget for this one was twenty five million. Box office six million. It was a famous flop. I can only imagine. I can only imagine that based on six million, they mm. didn't give it a full release. I mean, yeah. I haven't looked into it, but I, 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 I cannot believe you can release this movie for, in all the theaters and only make six million. I remember but it may, coming may, out. Maybe I remember it coming out and being advertised, but that was it. Then it quickly disappeared. See, in my mind, again, in my mind, Tank Girl, like The Shadow, is a big movie. It was at the cinema. I remember all the. I remember the magazines being out, the trading cards, the stickers being yeah. out. Um, and I remember when, and then the video came out, and I would have watched it a lot of times on video mm. um, because it was really different and bizarre yeah. and zany and interesting. So, in my child's mind, um, you know, at the age of twelve or whatever, this was a big movie. If we ever get round to handling it, I don't think we will. We could look deeper into that. Can't. I can't think we will. No. 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 Next <coughs> up, uh, a much bigger film that I remember. Batman Forever. Now this was a huge one. Uh, budget was a hundred million dollars. Box office three hundred thirty-six point six million. A guaranteed yeah. success with Batman always. Uh, next up, nineteen ninety-six. Barbed Wire. We Why met- is that on this list? I because it's, it's from a comic book. It's a comic book. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I and and plus I thought you know let's. Go go for the nineties. The Pamela Anderson film Barbed Wire budget nine million dollars. <laughs> box office three point eight million. Another, yeah. And as as I've said before in this podcast, the plot of that movie it is a remake of Casablanca with <laughs> Pamela Anderson playing the Humphrey Bogart character. One hundred percent, every plot point is from Casablanca. Yeah. Next up, nineteen ninety seven, possibly one of the regarded as one of the worst films of all time. Which I think is actually quite funny to watch in an ironic way. Batman and Robin. I don't say it's one of the worst films of all time. That is way over the top. No, it's no, only it's, slightly worse than Batman Forever. Uh, yeah, they, 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 they're they very similar films, but Batman Robin is considered one of the worst films of all time. It's, it's yeah, no, what, I know it is. I'm just yeah. saying, I think that's really over the top. It, it is. I mean, it's campy and silly, but it's like, it, it yeah. does what it does well, I thought. Anyway, that had a budget, a bigger one of 125 to $160 million, considering there's a lot of... Arnie's in it. It's Arnie. Arnie's that's in it. Arnie's payday. Arnie, unforgettable as Mr. Freeze. Box office, $238 million. Not great, but not bad. Uh, next up, this one I haven't really heard of. I uh, Steel from 1997. Did you hear about this one? I did hear about it. I rented it and watched it. It was direct-to-video in this country. What was it like? 
really bad, really bad. <laughs> like so, Steel. Um, mm. So in the early nineties, DC Comics kills off Superman. It's yeah. a massive event um, that plays a huge, significant role in what we call the speculator boom of the nineties, when um, people that didn't really care about comic books were buying loads and loads of comic books because they thought they were gonna go up in value and they'd be able to sell them later and make money. These people are idiots. Stupid people. Um, <laughs> but the, the follow-up, there was a massive comic book thing, which I fondly, fondly remember, and it was called The uh, Reign of the Supermen. So in a DC universe where Superman is dead, mm. a bunch of different characters come up to kind of replace Superman, and one of them is this guy who builds a suit of iron, a uh, suit Ooh. of armor. He's called John Henry Irons. Um, mm. He builds a suit of, of armor, um, which has a great big S on it, and mm. um, he becomes known as Steel, the Man of Steel. Man, place yeah, of, Man of Steel, yeah. Um, and they adapted that into a movie without Superman being involved <laughs> at all. <laughs> 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 and then they said, let's get Shaq. <laughs> Basketball player. He can play it. He's never acted before. Jeez. Let's put Shaq in it. Yeah. Jeez. And he just lives in a junkyard. Like, because John Henry Irons in, in, in the comics is this brilliant genius. And this, he's like, he runs a junkyard and he cobbles together, you know, a bit of metal and fights like street level bad guys. In the comics, this guy built an Iron Man suit of armor. He can fly, he can he fights supervillains and everything. This is, a, this is a letdown of a movie. Uh, <laughs> on, on a, before I tell you the budget box office, this is funny. I, I've been on, on your recommendation. I've been reading a couple of great Superman comics on the DC Unlimited. I I got through uh, American Alien, and I'm halfway through uh, All Star Superman. Uh, Grant All Star Superman is perfect. Oh, it's just so good. The writing's great, but I think American Alien, where it's chronicling his early life, was just so good. It was such such a good a good read. It's a, it's a short little mini series. Uh, with with some really good stuff, but if you can w- uh, read that anyway, back to ni- ninety seven steel budget was sixteen million dollars, box office one point seven million dollars. This is the thing: it's like if you did this stuff nowadays, you would not see this kind of return. You would at least get the money back. This is. I, I don't know. I don't know. Like again, I don't know if um, steel ever went to cinemas. Uh, okay, okay. I think I don't, for for younger listeners, there used to be a healthy uh, and the star of our of our of our movie today um, is a part of that. There used to be a healthy trade in the business of making direct to DVD or direct to video movies. Mm. Uh, probably st- what what might be comparable is movies today that go straight to a streaming service. Yeah. But some of them are massive. Like the, the latest Knives Out movie did that. Yeah. In the day, if you if something didn't get a cinematic release. Then you knew it was kind of low budget, kind of a bit low rent. It wasn't, you know, as good as. But you know, Disney did it with some of their sequels. The sequels to Aladdin I never those. went. Uh, to all their Disney movies, they only ever went out on VHS. They never went to the cinemas. But there was still like, and they didn't have like Robin Williams wouldn't come back for the sequel. Well, but some other he did for the first one maybe, but he came back for the second Aladdin sequel, and that was a, that was right. definitely a. But a, in general, you factor. wouldn't get the big stars. You get no. these other people doing it, and yeah, it's um, still fun. I'm gonna say Blade's on here. We need to skip Blade because it's after Spawn. So yeah, I'd say skip, we skip Blade. That. We we know that was. We've a already success. talked about that. So finally, brings us to Spawn. 1997 Spawn. <clears throat> the budget was 40 to 45 million dollars. Box office 87.9. Respectable. 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 It was fine. 
It's fine. I mean, and it is again. And you know what? Give we should have, we, we should give the blade numbers actually to give a bit of context. So I'm going to say Spawn, unlike a Batman or a Superman, it's it's was it Red Heart in '97? I don't know. Um, maybe it cooled a little bit, but this I think it was Red. I think the property, the character, was kind of Red Heart, but it didn't. Spawn didn't have decades and decades of creating fans. Yeah. Superman and Batman. And those characters have created generations of fans. That's a different breed. And they have had decades of cartoons, TV shows, merchandise to become a part of people's childhoods and lives. Spawn came out in 92, <laughs> had a movie in 97. <laughs> that's that's different. Um, and that's a quick could, turnaround. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it'd be comparable to something like Blade, who kind of came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why don't you tell us the Blade numbers then Because I'm giving that context Okay, for Blade, 1998 Budget was $45 million Box office, $131.2 million Good good, good stuff And that there was no Marvel Comics using that mm. promotion Really We looked at it you know, in our first year That is because that was That movie had Wesley Snipes Yep Who was one of the hottest actors going Spawn doesn't have Wesley Snipes, and I think that's part of it. And it may well be the trailer looked. Maybe people thought the trailer looked bad. Maybe the the I, I can't see much difference in he's a soldier of hell to he's a vampire. That you know I don't know. Yeah. Um, vampires were red hot at the time in ninety seven, so ninety eight. So that's probably could be part of it. But I think Wesley Snipes' star power really pushes um, that that movie uh, up from you know to to make that extra couple of uh, million more. Can't deny it, mate. Can't deny it. So, let me go. Let me tell you the story of the making of Spawn. So, dig through the dirt. Dig through the dirt. This is the dirt I found. The dig I've the dirt I've dug. Dig, 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 dig. Stop, stop. Yeah, okay. You're right there. I think having I'm having a stroke. Uh, <laughs> Columbia Pictures showed interest in making a film adaption of Spawn when the comic book was launched in 1992. Negotiations fell through as Todd McFarlane felt that the studio was not giving him enough creative control. He eventually sold the film rights to New Line Cinema for $1 in exchange for creative input and merchandising rights. Terrible, horrible, awful idea from Todd McFarlane. Like, merchandising rights is good, sure, but you you didn't create, you know, you didn't end up with a smash hit. It, it, It shows you how much creative control he wanted. Uh, yeah, and 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 <laughs> as we will get to with our story, uh, it'll, you'll see kind of why this is a person that wants to own everything that they kind of make, mm. which makes sense. Um, the problem is Todd McFarlane thinks. I think Todd McFarlane thinks he's a genius, and his success <laughs> is his success is you can't you can't question the success. But yeah. I think there was a problem with a lot of these image guys of thinking, yeah, I could I could be a writer. I could I I should be creatively in charge of a movie. Oh, cool. Have you been creatively in charge of a successful movie before, Todd? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, New Line Cinema president Michael DeLuca, also a comic book collector, said any character that has an established uh, that has a an established audience as Spawn uh, has great chances. The key to the movie being its success is that it maintains a PG-13 rating, but retains its darkness. As you said about hearing about it on the playground, that was what people. That was what was you know attractive to people. 
Mm. So it was darkness. Like accessible darkness. PG thirteen well, darkness. This is the tightrope. Yeah. What connects to people about Spawn is that it is dark and it is violent, and in that marks it out as different to Superman and Batman. But the only way to make money is to get kids to buy the toys <laughs> and the action figures and the merchandise. So, and that is, tr- is true of all these movies. Like, Dark Knight has to try and... Imagine being a kid trying to trying to bloody watch The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises. Jeez Louise. I would have ran out of the cinema crying, trying to sit through those movies. <laughs> Here's the bit where men in suits talk about a business takeover. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Can Batman please punch a bad guy and drive his car <laughs> off a building or something? Uh, but, they, but they need the merchandise and the toys yep, for it. And yep, yep. Uh, yep. There are entire scenes in some of those movies that I look at and I go, well, that's surely a level from a video game they're trying to sell me. That's yeah. surely a toy. The bit where the Batmobile comes apart and a bat bike came out, I went, oh, I see, lads. I see. Get two toys out of it, yeah. <laughs> There was. Uh, There's no way Nolan was coming up with that idea. It was some toy executive going. You just need. To, I need a bike. You need to put a bike in this movie as well as a tank. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was. Uh, remember the TV show Freakazoid, the cartoon Freakazoid. Runs around in underwear. Freakazoid. 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 His brain is overloading. It's garden chocolate coating. coating. <laughs> Textbook case for Sigmund Freud. Freakazoid. 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 Great cartoon. You can, I think you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. I love it. It's so good to go back to. But there was a phrase that he used for when superhero fr- properties of franchises introduce more stuff so they can turn into toys. It's called toy leak or toy leck or something because this is my new freak mobile it's toy leak and then they, hmm. they do this whole thing like yeah we need to get money to, with the friendship with the merchandising rights so you've introduced all this new stuff <laughs> yeah man yeah like it's it's uh, you know in the unregulated era of the 80s before yeah. television had to crack down on yes yes cartoons essentially being toy commercials it was why there was a transformers animated movie that killed everyone's childhood heroes is because they went, we need new characters. Kill the old ones, introduce new ones, sell those toys. And there's a problem there because the fans rejected that and went, yep. no, I don't care about Rodimus Prime. I was about to say, just about to say, who cares about Rodimus Prime? Yeah. Good film, though, the 1986 Transformers film. It was it was good, very, very good. I got it on DVD somewhere. The Great last stuff. cinematic appearance of... Orson Welles. Yeah, his last role as Cybertron. Weird, isn't it? Anyway, back to Spawn. As visual effects were an important production concern, the film was to be produced by Pull Down Your Pants Pictures, a company... I have lost all confidence in the making of this movie. And as soon as I see that, I read that in The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure, guys, if I'm going to see this movie. It makes me think. Do you know what uh, Metallica's first like demo EP was called? No. Metal up your ass. <laughs> that makes sense for Metallica. Yeah, but it's like it's a bit too silly. It's a bit too silly, like because the rest of the albums are quite serious sounding, aren't they? Like ride the lightning, kill them all. We, we had a long rambling quote, which we were of two minds whether to include <laughs> in the yes. notes section, and I said to Will, "I've read this. It's about five, about two, three paragraphs long. I've read it." Six times. I don't know what they're saying. I have no idea. It sounds like a cokehead. 
Like, yeah. he's, he, I, I have no idea what's being said. I'm finding out that that person's production company is called Pull Down Your Pants Pictures makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Uh, a company formed, uh, Pull Down Your Pants Pictures, was a company formed by former industrial light and magic artists Mark A.Z. Dip, or Dippe, Clint Goldman, and Steve Spaz Williams, the guy whose quote I deleted from the notes because you yeah. didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, man. If you can explain it to me, well, well I have then, uh, then cool. But I, I, I can't. Otherwise, ne- neither one of us can explain what's being said. Yeah, and, and I went. I looked at it. Went. Oh, I can trim this down into something. And then I went. No, I can't. Like, this is this delete. is this is this is a coke fueled conversation at four in the morning. Someone's having yeah. with me against my will with a guy called Spaz. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Spawn was originally greenlit with a budget of twenty million. The scale of the visual effects led New Line to continually increase the project's budget, which grew to 40 to 45 million, a third of which was spent on the effects. A third? Yeah. A third of the budget on effects. And, we'll get and on, I, yeah, I'll, I, I'll tell you about my opinions on the effects later. The costume yep. is brilliant. Yep, agreed. Uh, it looks fantastic, and the Violator looks brilliant. So. Some of it was well spent. Some of it was well spent. Uh, the shooting schedule was only 63 days. To product, uh, cut production time by a week, Goldman lent $1 million to engage John Grower's Santa Barbara Studios to develop the digitally produced hell sequences. That was $1 million not well spent. No, that's, the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the special effects that were bad. That was so bad, but we'll get onto that later. On the growing budget, producer Clint Goldman said, When we showed them what we had done, each time we'd screen the latest effects Spaz was working on, they'd give us another go-ahead for more money. Oh, God. (laughs) You have no idea how difficult that is. To line up shots together and get them to mesh, the movie business will continue to be democratised by the use of technology. Man. Yeah. Goldman squeezed an extra $1 million out of the budget by cutting a week's worth of shooting off the original 70-day schedule. The money was uh, went towards it creating a digital hell from, as well as from Santa Barbara Studios, an eight-year-old effects house with expertise in CGI or computer-generated images. I don't think so. Expertise should be in quotation marks here. <laughs> yeah. The most difficult sequences to render in the film included The Violator, Spawn's digital cape, and some of Spawn's transformations. Visual effects supervisor Spaz Williams, with his previous experience of creating the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, was responsible for realising the reptilian violator. It does show a bit here, doesn't it? The, the kind of, I mean, it looks of, it looks good in a similar way, and the, the kind of the angle of the camera. Yeah, that scene where yep. the T Rex kind of does that leaning down thing. Yeah, there's a similar kind of camera angle to Ex- when we first see the Violator in its demon form. Exactly what I was thinking of. I I, I still think the T Rex in, in Jurassic Park is possibly one of the greatest special of all time. Yeah, of all easily. time, it still looks good to this day. Yeah, the, that entire yeah. scene is still frightening. The movie marked the first starring role for Michael J. J. White, an accomplished martial artist being expertly trained in nine different styles, from boxing to jiu-jitsu, taekwondo, shotokan, and more. White then became a stuntman and actor, working on action movies like Universal Soldier, On Deadly Ground, and TV shows like NYPD Blue and JAG. Do you remember Michael J. White at all from the 90s? Nope. Okay. I have never seen this guy before. I, I, I think I think he's 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 good at like that tough guy role, like that guy in he reminds me of that guy in Dexter. 
the guy who hates him who gets killed off very early. Okay. He, he, he has that same sort of no-nonsense, really you know, overly macho, tough guy sort of look. And I think, yeah, that's fine. You know, he suits that role well. He's just, I wouldn't say he's a great actor. He just does a particular role quite well. White's breakout role was playing Mike Tyson in an HBO biopic, biopic which led to him being cast in Spawn. White became, as we said, the first African-American to portray a major comic book superhero in a major motion picture and would go on to star as the leading man in a litany of action movies. All all his action movies, I think, were directed DVD or directed video, and that's what I yeah. know him from. Like, I, we would, we would, as kids, we would rent and watch those movies um, of, like, Michael J. White killing some more people again. Um, <laughs> you know, just when, you, just when what you want is action, action, action. Yeah, um, yeah. so I, I, he was, to me, he was like a, uh, like a, a fairly, well, yeah, he was a, he was certainly a pop culture figure um, beyond this in the 90s, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think it bypassed there's a, me. There's a viral clip of him on the set of some movie. I can't think what it is. And he's, do you know, do you know Kimbo Slice, the um, the bare knuckle boxer who did a bit of UFC, massive uh, dude, Kimbo I, Slice. I don't know, no, no. Okay, well, Kimbo Slice is quite like a, a name, and mm. they're they're both in this movie playing tough guy roles. I don't know what the movie is, but they're dressed in like orange jumpsuits, kind of penitentiary <laughs> style. And, my, and it's a viral clip that I've seen loads of times in the last five years. And Michael J. White is showing uh, Kimbo Slice. And he's like, this thing of like, okay, watch the speed of my hand. I'm going to hit your hand three times. Don't let me hit your hand. And the first two times, he throws a really quick punch in Kimbo size, gets his hand out of the way. Um, and he's like, you're not going to touch my hand. He goes, okay, I'm going to do it a third time. Don't let me hit your hand. And Michael J. White really slowly moves his hand forward. And Kimbo Slice doesn't move his hand. And he just taps it. And everyone busts up laughing. And Kimbo Slice says, why did I move my hands? And he went, yeah, yeah, because I wasn't going fast. And it's just, and I don't know what it is about that clip, but it's like connecting. It kind of goes viral. And it's it's kind of like a psychological thing, isn't it? It's something. And Kimbo Slice is such a no-nonsense dude. Seeing him Mm. bust up laughing at being kind of like got by a little (laughs) trick was really, really fun. Oh, that's really cool. Looking back on the film, lead actor Michael J. White said, Yeah, maybe certain things were ahead of its time, but I find a fault with the storytelling, and I felt that there was a little too much special effects. I saw two versions. I saw an earlier version, where the story was more intact, showing the relationship between my Al Simmons character and his wife, and the desire for why Al would want to come back. Later, all that front story got eliminated. I think the people who had already followed Spawn, they already understood the character, and I think they followed along a lot more than most people did. And so I look at this way. I always loved just good basic storytelling. So I feel like the storytelling kind of got a little discombobulated. And things that were not written in the movie went into the second version of the movie. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. It's interesting. He likes... <laughs> just, I've seen a lot of Michael J. White movies. I don't know if he loves good basic storytelling. <laughs> he loves kicking people through windows and like jumping out of cars and stuff, and I love him for that. But, but hey, sure, okay, Mike. Hey, poking people through windows clearly moves the narrative along. It's, it's basic yeah. storytelling. <laughs> On playing the role of Violator. Now, you're going to have to help me with this one, even though I do like this guy. John Legu... What's his, how's his name? Leguizamo? Legazamo, John Legazamo said, I couldn't believe I got that part. I mean, Todd McFarlane would spawn. You know, the comic book industry was dying in the late 80s. No, it, it wasn't. 
It almost went under. No, no, it didn't. No. And single-handedly, Todd McFarlane would spawn his drawings. You what? <laughs> single-handedly? Carry on. His drawings, dark, edgy, sexual. He bought vulgarity. He bought death, real, that was lacking in the comic books because they were all like Superman and Peter Parker. Yeah, we hadn't had Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and Animal Man and Swamp Thing. We had not any of that, have we? John Leguizamo, you nonce. You, they were they were all kind of cute, and you didn't really feel the reality. Yeah, they were. They were cute almost Dark Knight Returns, where the Joker breaks his own <laughs> neck. Yeah, cute. They were almost from another century, and he brought the greenness, and the comic book industry started f- borrowing from him. And then- <laughs> <laughs> from him, Tom <laughs> McFarlane, every success. Oh my god! All I, these so- guys. All the image guys are, for better or worse, massive rip-off artists yeah. of popular stuff from Marvel and yeah. DC, right? And look, it worked for them, and it was really popular and stuff. And there's lots of lots of fun stuff about Spawn. But that is a stupid thing to say Very. to a reporter and have printed, and then let me read, because I know. <laughs> <sighs> oh, okay, was I? And then I, I got know. a chance Something to be... about Todd McFarlane changing the... Saving the comic book industry and everyone copying him. And then I got a chance to be in the movie of that series. That was an incredible opportunity for me. And Mark Dippy, the director, allowed me to improvise like crazy. So I made up crazy amounts of dialogue. Silly and grotesque. Vulgar. It's mostly in the R-rated version of the director's cut, but not so much in the PG-13 release. I think it, I must have seen that R-rated because some of the stuff he says yeah. in the version I see is wonderfully gross. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of that, and it's nice to it's nice to see he improvised it, and he's a sick little man. I will, I will, you know, I have respect for him in this film, and I'll talk about it later. But it was grueling. The first day of test makeup was eight hours. I was under makeup for eight hours before I hit the stage, and then we got it down to about four hours. But I had blisters on my face. Blisters. Calluses on my neck. Oh, it was brutal. When you hear about these things, like Jennifer Lawrence covered interviews about about like the, the, the makeup process for Mystique being yeah. eight, nine hours, I think I, I, I just wouldn't do that job. I no. couldn't take a job no. where I'm just sat still. I'd have to spend eight to ten hours a day sat still with people. Like, I just couldn't do that. I'd, no, I'd no. go mad. Do you ever remember the, the Fast Show? Remember that, that, that sketch? That guy, the actor who's like spent, he goes, of course, it takes eight hours in makeup. And then it's like, it's done in five seconds and it looks really rubbish. Oh, right, no, I don't remember that one. Oh, it's a good sketch. Hunt it down on YouTube if you can. I'm, uh, not gonna. I'm just not no, going to. No, you told good. me about it and that's probably all I'm going to take away from that. Spawn was the theatrical <laughs> debut for director Mark A.Z. Dippy, who had previously worked on special effects for Industrial Light and Magic, as we said. Mark worked on the CGI effects for The Abyss, Terminator 2, and Jurassic Park. So Ooh. you would think, you know, those are good special those are good special effects films, aren't they? Those those are legendary special effects films. Yes. There are some movies, Will, <laughs> that have phenomenal carpentry involved. And all the wood or whatever on the show is great. On the on the on the movie is great. And you might look at that and go, "He's the best carpenter in the movie business." <laughs> I will now let him direct a movie. I don't. 
I don't think that I can't see what the in what way would you let a graphics nerd <laughs> tell a story? <laughs> that being said, that's the story of Image Comics. <laughs> yeah, you take these artists who I don't have a lot of experience writing stories, and you go, you now are in charge of all the stories, and see how long it takes everything to fall apart. <laughs> Looking back on the film, director Mark Dippe said, Oh man, it was so hard, and you know I'm proud of it, and it had a certain success. But I'll tell you, there were some issues with it, but the property itself was amazing. Todd McFarlane's a genius! No, and it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a great property. But the first big thing is agreeing to make a PG-13 movie with that material. We fought as hard as we could against that. But the truth is, it's a big business there's not much you can do we barely got the rating and the studio was very upset with that and in spawn there's no real death either i mean it's a funny thing i would say today pg-13 is much more intense but we had such a hellacious time getting that cleared i can't say i know a huge amount of the ratings these days pg-13s and that kind of stuff because I don't, because I don't have to pay attention to. It. I just go see a movie. Oh yeah, same. I I I barely pay attention. I've got it. I'm hoping to take my uh, my godson, who's ten, to see the new Shazam movie. So I need to check out. I imagine that's PG. Um, it should be PG because yeah. it's a fairly jokey character uh, in in the film from what, what I've seen of it anyway. <clears throat> Good first movie, real fun. Yeah, yeah. I might give it a go. I might give the second one a go. I'm just I'm anyway anyway. Talking about the difficult process of being an experienced director, an inexperienced director making a blockbuster, Dippe said, I think in those first couple of days, we already got behind a little bit because I, I just, just would say, oh, let's shoot this again. And, you know, you get so excited and you want to do your best. One day, Bob Shea, the head of New Line Cinema, comes down and he says, Mark, it's so nice to see you. Daly's looking great. I hear you're a little bit behind. He goes, this is so great. He goes, you're going to be on schedule tomorrow, aren't you? I go, I'm going to do my best. He goes, you're going to be on schedule tomorrow, Mark, aren't you? I say, I'm trying really hard. And he goes, you're going to be on schedule tomorrow, aren't you, Mark? I go, yeah. And I shake his hand and he goes, great. And I'm thinking, it's just like in those mafia movies. It's like, otherwise, (laughs) it's like, otherwise I get my legs broken. It was really... I, I loved it. I just loved it because he was smiling and he was so calm. <laughs> yeah, I think there's perhaps a lot more menace in those quotes than perhaps you portrayed in your portrayal. You're going to be on schedule. I think it was yeah. more, you're going to yeah. be on schedule tomorrow, aren't you, Mark? Yeah. I think that was probably more how it was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, the Spawn, the album. Now, have uh, you listened to this? No, I have not listened to the album. I asked you, to, it's so, it's, it's really, it's really 90s, but it is so... Uh, it's so, such a kind of a weirdly unique idea, especially for what is, you know, just the soundtrack to a movie. But tell us all about it. Uh, so it's al- great, though. The album was released in 90, uh, July 1997 and featured a popular rock and metal group of bands at the time, including <clears throat> Metallica, Korn, Slayer, Marilyn Manson, Stabbing Westwood, Filter, Soul Coughing, Silverchair, and Manson, in collaborations with well-known electronic uh, techno producers such as The Crystal Method, Ronnie Size, The Prodigy, DJ Greyboy, Atari Teenage Riot, Moby, Orbital, and 808 State. I know so, a lot of these artists. They, 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 so they, they, they t- 
tune them up basically yeah um and it was a really it's an album of really interesting collaborations i think that albeit very 90s very not i mean yeah orbital and moby very 90s a similar concept was previously implemented on the rock hip hop infused judgment night soundtrack and later on the blade 2 soundtrack forming a trilogy of genre blending soundtracks produced by happy walters bloody hell 808 state I haven't heard about those since in ages. No, yeah, it's a lot of these like when his size kind of faded out as well, mm. and Atari Teenage Riot. I'm not think I've heard of them in a long time. Um, well, just proving just just how much of a time capsule that than a snapshot of the '90s this is. I can't think of anything more mid '90s than Filter though. If you've ever heard, listened to the song "Hey Man, Nice Shot." It's incredibly mid '90s. It's the most mid '90s thing I've heard in my entire life. 1997, uh, Will, I, let's find out what was going on in the world first. It'll be interesting to find out where we were in the world. We're probably both in school. Yeah. Um, I was 13 years old when this movie came out, and I do remember it coming out. Um, No, I was 14 years old. Yeah, I was 14. And 14, (laughs) see, I'd been like, 14, I'm just starting to find the, the, the early parts of my personality. Like, the personality that would follow me through into young adulthood and all of that, which is uh, being funny and taking the mick out of people, and 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 that that I, I kind of found where I was. And before that, I'd been quite a quiet person at school, and I'd been quite mm. a like I wasn't. The problem with me is I'm not very intelligent. I'm not really smart. I'm good at words and language, right? But I'm yeah. not. I I I I just wasn't good at things. I wasn't good at any sport, and I wasn't good at any subject other than English. And so I just. I, but I all I all I did was I wanted people's like attention and yeah. and approval, and I got that through like being well behaved in class. Um, and that you know it, I wasn't really enjoying myself. <laughs> and then I, I don't know what happened, but around the age of fourteen, I I kind of discovered I was funny, um, and I started being louder and speaking up more and all that kind of stuff and taking the mic and making jokes in class. I became a bit of a class, bit a little bit of a class clown and in my infantry group and crap people up. And I got new friends because I was funny, and I started to branch out my social groups and. Um, yeah, that was around the age of 14. I had a lot of friends that lived in villages um, around my school, my high school, and I was spending an awful lot of my time um, hanging out and partying in these villages mm. where you were just alone in, in a big rural setting. A friend of mine <laughs> lived and owned a farm, and we would we would do help some farm chores, but there was also a lot of riding motorbikes across a farm and driving around on quads and... Uh, building a zip line from the top of his sheep hut and lots of mad adventures in these in these rural settings. What were you up to uh, in '97? Will, how old were you? I believe. Oh God, I I was ten. Ten in nineteen ninety seven. Oh, it's hard to know what you're doing when you're ten. I think, isn't it? And what was I, going I do on? remember. Yeah, I I started secondary school, Crofton School in Stubbington. Uh, at 10. Stubbington doesn't sound like a real place. <laughs> it, it, it is a real place. And one time we found a place called Stibbington. We were like, Hold on, what, what the hell? Natural enemies. Natural enemies. Yeah, I, I remember it. Uh, I remember being in school. Didn't have a great time. Uh, in school, unfortunately. Uh, I think it was either this year or 1998. My parents divorced. Uh, but I do remember playing a lot of Nintendo 64. Ah. Oh. I think 1994. 1997 was a huge time for me playing the Nintendo 64. 
Uh, we, and watching The Simpsons, it was it was great. We had um, there was a, a above the comic book shop because I had a comic book shop. Um, was that around this time? Yeah, I think it would have been this in the next year. There was a comic book shop that had opened up in my hometown, um, and above it, mm. in the in the floor above it, a game a gaming place opened up where you would go with your mates and rent an N64 or a PlayStation yes. and play joint games together. So we would go into town after school. Um, we're of that age where we could do that on the bus and everything. And um, I'd go and like buy some comics and chat to the comic book shop guys who I've known for years. Shout out to Two Fat Goblins and Phil, who's been supplying me with comics for like 25 years or something. <laughs> and then we'd go upstairs and we'd all rent an N64 because, um, you know, a lot of times you can't go back to friends' houses and people oh. don't have a, a, a video system and all that. And I forget what it cost per hour or half hour or something. And we just played GoldenEye and Mario Karts for like two hours after school until it got dark yeah. and they kicked us all out and we had to go home. Oh, what a time. Mario Kart and, 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 and GoldenEye, the greatest party fun games I've ever, ever, ever played and had in my life. Only one game... Came beat those for me, and that was SmackDown Two on the PlayStation. But you'd have to get the multi tap oh, involved. SmackDown yeah, Two. Was... Sorry, I should, I should, I should include in that either No Mercy or No Mercy. Yeah, we had uh, that. WCW NWO uh, Revenge or World Tour. One, one, one of those two. They were really, really yeah. good. Okay, in '97, the events of the world, um, uh, the UK. That's us. We handed uh, Hong Kong back to the People's Republic of China. It sounds like we did this magnanimously. The contract ended after like a hundred years. <laughs> and we had no choice. Um, I read a fascinating article once, a journalist wrote, about what Hong Kong was like the year or so after it went to back to China and became a communist situation. Um, mm. And before that, it had been all, you know, capitalist Western. Um, and so it was like, suddenly... All the greatest, one of the some of the greatest hotels and restaurants in the world are now being run by a communist kind of government mm. and authority. And he said, "What happens is, it doesn't matter whether the people serving you they don't need your business; they're getting paid the same one way or another." And so, what happened to Hong Kong is like this hilarious game started to glow up. You'd go to a hotel, the best hotel in the world that you have. I've stayed at you know, for over 10 years, when it was a capitalist country. And now, I'd go in there, ask for a room, and they just say, no, I haven't got a room, and turn me away. You go to a great restaurant, you sit down, you'd ask for something on the menu, and they'd say, we haven't got that. And you'd go through every item on the menu, and they'd say, no, we haven't got that. And so you left, because it didn't matter to them, because they don't get paid any more with your business. They are paid a flat rate to live on. <laughs> so he said this game would develop between Western reporters that he knew and Western people that were living there, and where if you wanted the hotel in the best hotel, if you wanted a room in the hotel, you'd march past like the reception desk, you'd put your bags in a room or in front of a room, you'd grab someone and say, I'm staying there. <laughs> and they they would smile and laugh and kind of they be oh you 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 found the loophole and give you the key and the same in the restaurant he said what we used to do in the restaurant is we'd walk into the kitchen we go up to the chef and we point at something and we go I want that chicken <laughs> and I want rice and then they go ah oh, all right then it was an absolutely fascinating article that I read it was years and years ago that I read it, it must, was really must have, must have changed since. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, the same year, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's South Park aired its very first <sighs> episode on Comedy Central, becoming that was the one with the uh, the, uh, the, Cartman, the probe. Cartman anal. gets uh, anal probe. Yeah. Um, me and Cartman similar lives, uh, becoming one of the. <laughs> 
He only got probes. I got colonoscopy. There's a lot more going on. Uh, because one of the most infamous to celebrate sitcoms yeah. ever made. Do you remember watching the first episode? Because I really do at my mate Stephen's house. I was too young. school one day. Taped it. I, I was too young to watch. Oh, of course, remember, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well watch the first episode, but I remember being advertised. It was like, oh, this looks interesting. And I managed to convince my mum to let me tape it late night on Paramount Comedy Channel on cable. And they, she was not happy with me watching it, but I st- still, you know, you know, and I watched it. I remember it was the first one I saw was the Halloween episode, uh, and then, and then, you know, it was like begrudgingly getting me the VHSs for Christmas as well. It's instant yeah. pop culture smash, and I'll tell you instant. how I know that because right now, me and my buddy, we are watching old wrestling shows. Historically, we're going week to week. We started in 1996. Mm. We're now watching Raw and Nitro, 1997, week to week. Every Monday, we watch, you know, two episodes. Mm. And suddenly, in 1997, and this is a time in wrestling where people would, fans would bring loads of homemade signs. Yes, yeah. Suddenly, 1997, one of the most the most popular signs have nothing to do with wrestling. It's Eric Cartman pictures. Yeah, yeah. T-shirt and and in the crowd. Um, Kenny and Eric Cartman t-shirts are everywhere. Yeah. Eric Cartman's signs are everywhere. They have nothing to do with wrestling. It was just a pop culture thing that just out of nowhere, suddenly it's all these crowds and audiences have these signs. It's amazing. It was the exact same thing with the early 90s and Bart Simpson, where Bart Simpson was ubiquitous with all this merchandise. Sure, yeah. I, I still watch yeah, but South merchandise, Park. merchandise is different. Like, mm. I never saw... In the early 90s, no one came to a wrestling show and held up a Bart Simpson poster or sign they'd made. This mm. is like not buying the merch. Buying the merch I'm sure buying the merch was, was massive. Yeah. This is like a... I don't know what this... There was something about it that because it was adult, it was kind of like a defiance. It was kind of like mm. my flag of my personality yeah. is South Park because they're rude and they're this, that, the other, and they're satirical. So that was quite an interesting... Um, thing um we also had the death of princess diana the princess of wales mm. um do you remember this going on i do uh i'll tell you what happened not, not oh the, the we know we it's been a no, pretty no, historic no. event i'll tell you what happened in my life uh i was 10 obviously uh and i would i wanted to watch cartoon network and then, <laughs> and then all, every single channel i remember had the, had the banners so... saying Got to turn over to the news, and I was I like, "Oh, Prince Dynasty, awful man!" It, it was watch Prin- any of my programs. Yeah, yeah, it was like Princess Diana's dead. I went, "Oh, that's a shock. That's shocking. That's sad." Okay, I'll go back to watching Cartoon Network, and the span is still there. I remember telling my mum, "Like, I get it. I know what's happened. Could they just please stop doing that?" Yeah, man. I, I, not um, to be insensitive, but it's just like I get this big news, but ugh, it was it was annoying. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres uh, publicly came out um, mm. as a, uh, a gay woman, a lesbian, um, and that affected massively affected her deal with the, um, her TV show was um, produced by Buena Vista, which is a Disney company, and yeah. that upset that. That was a big thing. I remember. I remember watching. I'd watched the Ellen show and enjoyed it when I was a kid uh, when it first came on. Her rambling kind of sit- the sitcom and her character was this got awkward and rambled and that was a really mm. funny thing to watch and i do remember watching the last episodes and kind of getting the jokes kind okay. of getting them okay um because i wasn't too up on american um slang and nomenclature and stuff like that and coming it might have been the first time i'd heard coming out and and getting what that meant like i don't maybe i'd never heard it before um 
as a as a euphemism. Uh, and the notorious B.I.G. A biggie was mm. murdered in the drive-by shooting in L.A. Is that something that, you, that permeated to you at all? No, no, no. Um, I, I I thought it was quite a big thing. I thought it'd be worth mentioning mm. uh, because the, the two the two main main things. What is it? Biggie, uh, notorious B.I.G. and uh, and Tupac. Tupac, there's a year later, I think. Year later, yeah, yeah. Insane. Um, yeah, and though, although it did, I I bought my very first CD, and it's on our top ten songs list. There's the top ten songs of the year. Candle in the Wind by Elton John. He he kind of did a new version of that and rewrote the lyrics about his friend uh, Princess Diana. That was massive. I remember that. Mm. Um, Foolish Games You Were Meant For Me by Jewel. That's very much an American... I don't know if we had... We don't think we ever had Jewel in this country, really. Um, The only thing I know about Jewel is that she's country, pop, and everyone makes fun of her teeth. And as an English person, I think that's incredibly me and you should stop. (laughs) Um, uh, The third biggest selling song... I think it's all American and not... Uh, nation, you know, worldwide, whatever. I'll be missing you, Puff Daddy and Faith Evans. The very first CD I ever bought. Amazing. Um, the the news story about Biggie about Biggie Smalls kind of set me off to um, find out about stuff like. Uh, I was already listening to some rap music, but it was more Run DMC and things and mm. had bits of that. And, yeah, and I listened to some NWA at the time as well because they had swear words in their songs. Um, and uh, I was so I was just, I think I, I think I didn't discover Biggie Smalls until he was. Dilly was dead. Um, but yes, the first CD for my new CD player, which I won in a competition at the uh, Rural County Fair. <laughs> the big green thing. And my yeah. nan had a picture of me that she cut out of the newspaper because it was like a newspaper competition and I won a CD. They took a picture, they put it in the paper. My nan mm. cut the picture out and framed it. And Aww. it was so in her house. Oh. She had a photo of my parents getting married, most special day of their lives. A uh, photo of my sister um, graduating from university um, and and then getting married, most special days in her lives. And then a photo of me winning a CD player in the newspaper <laughs> at 14. And that's it. Nothing else. No evidence of me. <laughs> um, all the big songs of the year. Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. You God. must remember that one. Yeah. Unbreak it, it's my heart. heart. Sing of me again. Yeah, it, that was one of those songs for me. It's not I, objectively; it's a good song, but it goes on. It feels like it drags for me. That song. I remember, yeah, songs of that age. Some songs of the eighties and nineties. They would they they would repeat like the chorus again and again and again and fade out to end. And I used to find yeah. that really really annoying. Nah, I don't um, like fade outs. Big TV shows in 1997. Seinfeld um, was the biggest by a country mile. Um, ER and Friends were um, still in their kind of... ER... Yeah, Clooney's still in ER, so that's still going yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Friends is uh, is rattling around. The X-Files... God, home... what... Sorry. I was no, going to yeah. gush about the X-Files. Yeah, man. That was such a big thing back then, was it? The X-Files huge, was a huge, huge thing back then. Massive. Unbelievably massive. Yeah. Um, I, I, there was a tweet that came out the other day, some new person who wasn't alive back then, talking about how it was sexless. And I was like, you have no, <laughs> you have no idea. The chemistry between those two. Yeah. The smouldering yeah. looks. The mouldering, if you will. Oh. Hey! Smouldering moulder. Home Improvement was huge. Yeah, remember um, that. Frasier was big. Mwah! What a King what a of show. the Hill, which 
was getting higher ratings than The Simpsons around this time. It's a good show, King of the uh, Hill. Very love underrated. King, love Great. King of the Hill. Really worth going back to watch King of these, the Hill. These, it's so, just look at the list of these. I went, yeah. all of these are like my, I mean, Home Improvement mm. was something I watched when I was a kid, but wouldn't go back to watch now. Yeah. But, Everything else is like these are my shows, and well, they were for decades. I went back and watched Frasier, and we had a discussion about this. And I think it might be one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. It's oh yeah, so it's very well very good, so well written. Highest grossing movies, nineteen ninety seven. Men in Black. <laughs> oh, didn't make it into your list of um, superhero movies, and yet that's a it's- comic book property. Uh, yeah. Just, some As things a, are very obviously not superheroes, like half the list you put down. <laughs> I know Men in Black is based on a comic, and it, it, I, yeah. I'm kicking myself for not putting it on there. But yeah, it, it is indeed obviously based on a comic, based on the uh, conspiracy theory to do with government agents or aliens pretending to be government agents hiding UFOs. But yeah, what a film. What Took a film. over 250 million at the box Ooh. office. Big, big, big year. Massive movie. I remember that. That was a huge movie, wasn't it? Huge. All your ma- friends went to see it. Inescapable movie. And, and then, the of course, song as well. The, yeah. The band back was the top of the charts. And God. then all the merchandise and toys and stuff. It was massive. The, did a cartoon series not yeah. long after. I remember that cartoon series. It was good. Uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park sequel. Yeah. 29 million. I remember being disappointed as a kid watching that in the cinema. I, I thought the ending yeah. was silly. Yeah, 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 big time. That's when they, 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 they ends up. Uh, it, they have to hunt him through like suburban. San, yeah, rubbish. Yeah, I, I just, I just thought, no, don't like that. Uh, silly. Liar, liar takes in one hundred eighty-one <laughs> million. And I remember watching that. Yeah. I remember watching, thinking this is just not as good as the mask. They've just it's, tried to find something like the mask, but it's just not as good as the mask. You have so many of these Jim Carrey movies where it's just him doing a series of silly things, like Liar Liar, Bruce Almighty. But there are some good bits in Liar Liar where it's just like, yeah, there yeah, are, there, are there definitely are. Yeah, you, you are just watching a series of Jim Carrey bits, basically. That's all you're doing. Air Force One, where Harrison Ford plays the president. <laughs> 171 million. Love that movie. Love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, thingy is the bad guy, isn't it? Um, I haven't seen Air Force One. It's uh, Alan Rickman is the bad guy, I think. Alan Rickman, fairly certain. Love that. It's a really good film, Air Force One. You should check it out. Okay, um, okay. And uh, and the re-release special edition of Star Wars, hundred thirty-seven yeah. million. So I can't work out why this happened. It must have been during a school holiday or something. But we went on class trips to watch. Mm. Star Wars, the school trip, <laughs> our year. We all paid. We all got a discounted, a discounted ticket. Yeah. But if we did a group booking, yeah. it must have been a deal between the school and the cinema. Yeah. And we went in during like a half term or something like that, and we all got to watch Star Wars together. And that was kind of, I'd, and I'd watched them on telly as a kid every, Same. you know, Same. every year, bank holidays or whatever. But the re-releases came like I'm, I'm 14 when it comes out, so it was a great. And that I started to, I started to get into. Star Wars then, and and really enjoy them yep. and take them at a take them as kind of like a, a more than a more mature way, rather than they're just kind of on every every bank holiday or Christmas. They the think they think it's with the special edition is it kind of overwrit overwritten the original films. You can't get the original films anymore. The without the I, new stuff. I'm, I remember, yeah, I remember hmm. buying the tr- tracking down and finding original versions on VHS and buying them, so I at least had it. Um, yeah. And I was expecting Disney to have released a proper old version once they bought 
but I they didn't. Loved that. And I wonder if Lucas put it in the contracts just to oh. screw us all one last time. He's he's a he's a weird man, Lucas. A very weird man. Uh, Batman Robin also, as Will mentioned, released the same year. It took 107 million in th- that year. Marvel Comics in 1997. Um, now we've taught, and and if you want to check out the onslaught event, you'll have to go into our um, mm. check out our bonus shows on Patreon. But in the wake of the um, of the onslaught event, where a dangerous, powerful mutant kind of uh, nearly destroys all of America. Um, Operation Zero Tolerance begins in the X-Men comics. The long-hinted-at Project Wide Awake begins, which is a government clampdown on mutants as led by the anti-mutant zealot Bastion, um, who is meant to be the big new... um, Big new X Men bad guy. Yeah, big letdown of a crossover event. This one really, I, I remember it not really firing on all cylinders. Even after onslaught, <laughs> which was a bit of a letdown. Um, we are existing in a world without Iron Man, Captain America, the Avengers, and the Fantastic Four. They die at the end of onslaught, and we have them. We have them for virtually their their. They're not around for virtually the entirety of nineteen ninety seven. Um, we do have another superhero team rise up to kind of replace them. Um, they make their debut in the Incredible Hulk, and this is the Thunderbolts. Justice Ooh. strikes like lightning, led by the patriotic Citizen V um, and a bunch of other superheroes. Um, and that is one of the coolest stories. I, I, I can't wait for us to try and deal with it. Um, uh, are you looking awesome. forward to the uh, screen debut of the Thunderbolts, whether it's TV or film? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a movie. I'm not sure. I think, I think they've been announced as a movie. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like the characters and the cast and everything. And yeah, I, I, I uh, Elaine's going to be there, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Elaine, and it will give us a chance to talk about a very, very cool Thunderbolts kind of thing. The concept Excellent. of them. I mean, yeah. this is a, the movie is going to be an adaptation of like the second go round, the second kind of concept of the Thunderbolts. Like not this... of the galaxy was it was a later later. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's still going to be fun for us to dive into yeah. um, and then at the end of 1997 the Avengers Fantastic Four Cap and Iron Man all return to the Marvel Universe return from the dead the end of the Heroes Reborn experiment that we're going to talk about because it involves Image Comics um, Heroes Reborn the return and it begins kind of hopefully a, a bit of a new return to classic characters and classic heroics in the Marvel Universe Let's take a little look behind the page now at the Marvel Rebellion of 1991. This is a huge moment in the history of Marvel Comics um, that led to the creation of Image Comics, led to the creation of Spawn, changed the comic book industry forever, and eventually led to things like Invincible and The Walking Dead, as you talked about. Mm. The story centers around seven of the biggest artists in the world in the 90s. Eric Larson, who made his name drawing Spider-Man. Jim Valentino, who made his name on the um, Smash It! Guardians of the Galaxy series. Rob Liefeld, who made his name on New Mutants and and X-Force, created Cable and Deadpool, co-created them. Todd McFarlane, who um, made his name for Marvel on The Incredible Hulk and then Spider-Man. Wills Potassio, who made his name on The Punisher, X-Factor, and was doing Uncanny X-Men. Mark Silvestri, 
um, who was doing Uncanny mm. X-Men and Wolverine, and Jim Lee, who was a massive name, um, and drew X-Men. Awful lot of X-Men guys. Yeah. By the early 90s, Marvel is dominating comic book sales. Absolutely dominating uh, DC is not getting a look in um, Today Whilst a single issue was lucky to sell 80 to 90,000 Copies Back then Marvel was consistently Selling multiple Hundreds of thousands per issue Ooh. And these artists were behind The biggest selling titles With with writers of course But McFarlane's um, Spider-Man issue 1 Sold 2.5 Million copies Um, McFarlane Was such like a big deal That Marvel created A second Spider-Man title Just for (laughs) him to write And and work on Uh, Rob Liefeld's X-Force issue 1 Sold 5 million Copies beating McFarlane becoming the new record holder And then Jim Lee's X-Men issue 1 Smashed that record And sold over 8 million Copies to this day, the biggest selling comic book of all time. The art was a huge factor in, in, in driving these sales. The incredible front covers being created by these artists mm. were really driving sales up. Marvel experimented so much with... Like, this is how we know these front covers was with, with a thing. Marvel started to experiment with different types of front covers. Um, the, to begin with... They experimented with getting these superstar artists to draw more than one front cover. They were called okay. variant covers. I've seen these in uh, digital re- redos, I think. They right. Come at the back, yeah. So um, the comic book would come out and it would have two front covers. Mm. So comic book fans would now buy two copies of the same comic, <laughs> doubling Marvel sales <laughs> so they could get the two different front covers. Yeah. X-Men. Issue one, the one that sold over 8 million copies, part of that is because it had four different front covers by Jim Lee. <laughs> so wow. it was quadrupling some of the regular sales it would make. That is an indicator. That is a strong indicator of, yes, the writers are deeply important to Marvel, the stories and all of that, right? And on the artists are involved in the stories. But that is an indicator of how... At this period of time, late 80s, early 90s, it is all about this dynamic, bombastic, ultra-macho art style that these seven guys are are, are bringing in and, and, and really spearheading. Because when you buy three or four copies of the same comic, the story inside is the same. The only hmm. reason you're you're spending three or four times as much money is because it's the artwork, the artwork, the artwork that these people want, these front covers. Now, admittedly, there is this thing of there's a speculator market that creeps up in the late 80s, right? Hmm. Um, trading, baseball, sports trading cards, baseball cards and things like that had had a massive moment in the 80s of being the new thing that collectors buy – yeah, speculating that they're going to shoot up in value and become very, very worthwhile. The next thing that this speculator market moved on to was comic books. And they thought that if they bought the right copy, 
then in 30 years time 20 years time it would be worth lots of lots of money like the first issue of action comics with superman is Mm. a stupid thing to think (laughs) when they're producing (laughs) millions of them but yeah but it was it was it was introducing high high amounts of sales into the into the uh the industry so in 1991 of the top 50 best-selling comics in america top 55 39 of them were from these seven artists that's wow. how much they were dominating if marvel had a stranglehold on comic book sales these guys had a stranglehold on marvel they were marvel's biggest hitters so much of marvel's 80s late 80s early 90s success was because of these seven guys Tom McFarlane, Jim Lee, and Rob Liefeld were the top, top superstars of the industry. Um, they started to break out into other kind of roles. Rob Liefeld, in 1990, partners mm. up with Spike Lee to make a commercial for Levi Jeans. Ooh. Levi Jeans? That's a, yeah. that's a weird tangent. Spike Lee was making commercials, and yeah. it was like they picked out, in the way that they might have picked out a, a sports star, this approach was to bring out really it was to new young cool hip people in the, of the 90s and you know rob liefeld's x-force was such a hit that spike lee and the levi team went this is a this is a this is a star a breakout star we want to focus on um and these guys are freelancers as well mm. they they're they're responsible for all of marvel's hits but they're not employees they are work for hire which right. is a bizarre thing to have so much of your business relying on a freelancer is weird. Mm. Um, so I don't have exact figures. I don't know if exact figures are ever out there. Right. These artists will get paid a fee per page of artwork that they do. A flat fee. Let's right. negotiate ahead of time. And then if their comic they're working on sells more than a certain amount of copies, then any any sales above that level they'll get paid either a small bonus, sorry, a bonus, which I'm sure is good, or a small, small, small percentage of the extra sales, a royalty. Okay. But nothing like what Marvel is actually making in profit. Hmm. If they create, if these freelancers create, working on the work for hire, if they create huge genre-shifting characters like Rob Liefeld did with Cable, and Deadpool back to back they don't own those characters Marvel does they have no say over how these characters are used and Marvel takes all the money when they become when they use them in other comics when they make them into toys merchandise action mm. figures video games they might pay a, a a small royalty fee to the artist when the character is used maybe but it's nothing compared to what what actual profit is being raked in by the company Siegel and Schuster the mm. creators of Superman died in poverty Oof. Bill Finger the co-creator of Batman died in poverty comic book history is littered with stories of writers and artists who create something incredible something that changes the industry that that connects with generations of fans over multiple decades but only get a tiny tiny fraction of what it's worth as the company takes all the profit 
Stan Lee has had to sue Marvel multiple times to try and get some fraction of compensation of what he might be worth um, as the guy that created these characters. You know, Stan Lee doesn't own Marvel and never has done. And I'm sure he was well paid compared to some other jobs, but compared to the billions that the company will make off the of the creative of the of the creation the the artist doesn't get very much at all december 1990 well in in 1991 rob leefield has this idea he's had a lot of clashes with marvel um editors and higher ups Mm. um pushing back on he he's late with his issues these artists are all a bit late they're all a bit lackadaisical but they're also pushing back over the things that rob rob wants to move x-force and stuff like that in a more mature and edgy direction a lot of pushback a lot of editorial um interference a lot of clashes with the writers that he's working with and so in 1991 leefield has the initial nugget of an idea he wants the next thing that he does to not be for Marvel Comics, but to be something that he publishes himself and is creator-owned, which is the term used in comics. Mm. So it's a character he owns, and and, and he, he all the costs are his, but also all the profit will be his as well. Um, instead of creating characters like Cable and Deadpool, he creates something that he can own. Um, and then in, in December of that year, 1991, there's a comic book convention, and a lot of these artists are there. Hmm. Eric Larson, Rob Leefield, Jim Valentino, they're having dinner at this convention with the editor-in-chief of Malibu Comics, who's a guy called Dave Albrich. Dave Albrich, uh, Malibu Comics is a small but established publishing company that is making comic books, some superhero, sci-fi, fantasy-based ones, very small, but they have an infrastructure. Hmm. They... They can get the raw materials in. They have printing presses. They, you know what I mean. They, they know they can get out to distributors. You have to have an infrastructure yeah. to do anything. You can't just like print them, print a comic at home, and take it into a comic book shop. That's not how it goes. Malibu is sympathetic to these these creator ownership kind of sensibilities. And when Rob Leefield expresses an interest in doing something creator owned and Mal- Malibu publishing it for him, and there being a deal in place, Albrich is. Very interested in that, and extends the same offer to Eric Larson and Jim Valentino. And it's like that, yeah, it could be some fun things for you guys to do outside of Marvel. You're all freelancers, so you can do what you want. Todd McFarlane hears this, and he seizes on this concept. And him and Rob get together, and McFarlane is the guy that kind of makes what happens next happen. McFarlane as we'll come to see, is a brilliant businessman. And he might not have known it at the time, but he is. Todd McFarlane essentially rallies the troops. Mm. And he pitches this idea to these other artists. The idea of forming their own company and going head-to-head with Marvel. (laughs) And Todd manages to recruit Eric Larson, who's working on Amazing Spider-Man, Jim Valentino, who's on Guardians of the Galaxy, Mark Silvestri from Wolverine, Jim Lee from the X-Men, and, and Jim brings on board Will Spatissio from Uncanny X-Men. The top comics being made by Marvel. Now, all their artists are involved in a little conspiracy, mm. in a little rebellion. <laughs> McFarland's spoken about, and some of this, yeah. some of these guys he got the day before they do what they're about to do next, which is the big moment. Like, it wasn't this... 
it just naturally all fell together. All these guys were having problems with creative uh, input from editors and writers, and all of them were having problems with what they were being paid. And McFarlane says getting Jim Lee on board was a crucial, crucial moment to this rebellion. Because Jim Lee... Look, Rob Leefield and Tom McFarlane... They were the bad boys of Marvel. Marvel was up to their eyes in problems and conflicts and issues with Mm. these guys. Um, We talked about McFarlane's Spider-Man and how he was introducing like child molesters and serial killers into a Spider-Man story and there was graphic violence and yeah. Marvel having to push back and all of this mm. like Lee Field was the same there's all this they've always been battling with Marvel Jim Lee is the golden boy he is beloved he's the quiet nice guy he delivers his art on time and he's just the good guy and mm. once they get Jim Lee into this rebellion they knew he's the key. Like, Ooh. all the others know this is very, very serious as well. Jim Lee just sold 8 million freaking copies of X-Men. And he's now <laughs> saying, I'm going to rebel as well. Like, Ooh. that's a massive moment for this rebellion. And so, late December 1991, these boys march into Marvel's headquarters and have a sit-down with Marvel President Terry Stewart and editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco, and they tell the company, we are all quitting today. Wow. They tell Marvel their business practices suck. They are treating, the way they're treating and compensating the talent is crap. And so all of your top stars are walking out the door right now. And FYI, this is not a negotiating position. We're just going. All of Marvel heavy hitters. Remember that number. 39 out of the top 50. What's 50 minus 39, Will? That's what they're losing. They're losing 39 of of, of their massive, massive sales, right? Yeah. And without them, Marvel has only a fraction of the best-selling comics it used to have. Which means now, DC will be overtaking them in the best-seller list. The best artists in the industry are leaving the top titles. Amazing Spider-Man, artist gone. X-Men, artist gone. (sighs) Uncanny X-Men, Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Force, X-Factor, Wolverine, gone. Marvel panics, as you can well imagine. And they (laughs) scramble to desperately retain the seven. Um, and, And they're trying to address the group's frustrations over the editorial control and the creative kind of side of it and getting the way their stories and um as the story goes terry stewart and tom defalco make an offer um to give them creative control over a marvel project that was called new universe it was something marvel tried in the 80s which was a completely separate continuity and timeline um to the marvel universe it was a regular like non-superhuman powered world Mm. And then there would be a bunch of stories that would introduce a, a, a sci-fi event or a sci-fi character for the first time into a regular world. It was mm. called New Universe. It didn't pan out. It didn't work. But in this scrambling, they say, we'll, we'll relaunch New Universe and you guys can be in control of it and you can do what you want. It'll be outside of Marvel. You'll have final say. No dice. Because it's not about... It's about more than just creative control. Mm. It's about ownership, and it is about money. Mm. 
Jim Lee's artwork, his redesign of the of the X Men, is is lifted wholesale from his pages and used as the basis for the hugely successful X Men animated series. Ah, okay. When you look at the 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 X Men in that cartoon, you're looking mm. at Jim Lee's X Men. Right. Okay. Okay. It's his redesign of all those characters, mm. and the litany of toys, the action figures that come from that are made from his design. And the merchandise, therefore, is from his design. The video goes from his design. And he sees zero compensation and zero royalty share for that. Was it all part of the, the contract he signed at the beginning of his career? Sure. Yeah, of course. Is that is it fair that Marvel and Fox can profit off that person's work to such a degree without him being involved or compensated? No. That's no, not fair. Is it the reality of comic books? Yeah. Yeah. But that's about to effing change. Why work so hard (laughs) at creating new characters when it's the company that you work for that will take, I mean, all the profit? To call it the lion's share of the profit is a joke. It's virtually Mm. all the profit. If you have a great new idea for a character and you create it and launch it, and it becomes mega popular, Marvel spin it off into cartoons and movies and action figures, you only get a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of what that company makes. So why give your idea to Marvel? Why give it to Marvel? Todd McFarlane, he rallies them with this, with this mantra, and they're on board, and they walk out the door, and they leave. They're freelancers. They work for hire. Marvel are now panic mode Mm. and the next day mcfarlane calls up dc comics and makes another interview and dc are rubbing their hands together because what the dc comics think they think we're just getting the marvel rebellion is these guys want to come over here maybe for more money whatever (laughs) but we're gonna gut marvel mcfarlane takes this meeting walks in and says this is we've just walked out on marvel and we're just letting you know we're not coming to you Mm. we're leaving, we're starting our own thing, and we're coming for both of you. Ooh, damn. And and this is... Uh, there's also a nice story of Tom McFarlane also wanted to recruit Jack Kirby to the team. What? Because Kirby wasn't working for anyone. They wanted to bring him in as sort of like a, a figurehead. Um, wow. And McFarlane's pitch was that since all Marvel comics at the time have this thing of Stan Lee presents the X-Men, Stan Lee presents the Avengers, they wanted to be able to stick it to Marvel by bringing Jack <laughs> on board and having all the image com- comics carry the banner, Jack Kirby presents Spawn. But that, that didn't work out, but there we go. That's a shame. Um, when the story gets out of what's happened, Marvel's stock takes a dive. In... <sighs> In the business world, when a company loses like its talent, its top executive, let's say, it's called a brain drain. And that's mm. how it's reported on news channels. It often means the best and brightest um, of a company are going elsewhere. And that often leads to the company's stock plummeting. Well, that's what happened to Marvel. Once the story got out, investors panicked and dumped their Marvel stock. And if you look at the numbers, I would as well. 39 out of your top 50 best-selling titles, the guys responsible are going. I I want out. I want to put my money somewhere else. So, how like how do you what are your thoughts on this now? Immediately, will it's insane. It's absolutely insane. I mean, it's a massive 
massive move and you think ah this won't work out but I mean it's like even the rebellion won't work out but then they get like these big people who've done some of the most amazing stuff and it's just like yeah we're not we're not only we we're not jumping ship to DC we're actually just doing our own thing we're, we're carving our, our own slice in the big pie in the comic book industry of the early 90s absolutely it's the perfect time to do it I mean looking perfect back time. uh Rob Leefield said that there was no other time we didn't know that the boom was going to end in however many years mm. but when when you're the most when you're the top of something that's the time to make the move yeah to, whatever that might be it's a time to it's a, it's a time you're worth the most to other people exactly so the artists formed image comics which is a publishing group that would would house all of their creator owned comic books so each creator would have their own comic book studio within mm. the umbrella of, of Image Comics, and they were all responsible for their own business individually. Right. So if you're Jim Lee, you've now got to hire your own inkers, your mm. own, if you want a writer, your own colorists. Um, you've got to have an editor. You've got to get hit. You've got to hire an editor. You've got, Sound- so all the costs are yours. It sounds very libertarian, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I don't know. No. No, because they still use running water and electricity, and uh, they cross the street that someone else built, and you know. (laughs) So the first rule of Image Comics, they kind of only had two rules to begin with. Rule one: Image Comics, the company, the LLC, owns nothing. It owns nothing but the name Image Comics and the logo that Rob Leefield drew. The second rule is that no partner would interfere with another partner's comic book or business that's it so whatever you make at image comics is yours it cannot in the Mm. rules of the company the company can have no claim to what you do april 16th 1992 rob leefield's young blood issue one hits newsstands being published by malibu comics using their infrastructure but it's image comics first get out the door 1.5 1.5 million copies. Wow. Never before in the history of the comic book industry has anyone other than Marvel and DC done this. It, it, was, incre- it was huge news when Marvel did it. But now it's been done by a brand new outfit that is that you know there's no spider-man there's no x-men there's no avengers in that in that comic that's original characters rob leefield dreamed up created published june 4th the same year spawn issue one two million copies the best-selling indie comic of all time to this day no one is ever touching that number ever and then the rest, Jim Lee came out with Wildcats, Eric Larson came out with Savage Dragon, mm. um, Valentino came out with Shadowhawk, and the rest of the, those issue ones didn't sell the same, but they each sold over 500,000 copies of the first issue. It was incredible. And instead of being paid a fee per page and a percentage, mm. the artists now keep all those profits. Amazing, because they're their characters and it's their company. Um, Rob Leefield's on 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 late night talk shows and he's on Good Morning America promoting the company. He's the only one that kind of liked the attention like that. Yeah. Um, superheroes, superhero comics, thanks to a lot of thanks to the massive sales, thanks to the speculator market, 
Thanks to the death of Superman being a massive newsworthy story, because that mm. character never died before, so news covered that massive story. But superhuman comics, superhero comics, are at the, the apex of pop culture, and image comics are the talking point for like two years. Within four months of image comics being, being created, they have overtaken DC comics in sales. Image Comics, four months after starting, they're the number two comic book company in America. Amazing. Um, and it only lasts for a few months, but still, their sales were incredible. No other publisher has ever, ever done what Image did and made themselves a massive top company like that. Um, and you have to think about how that affects Marvel. Oh, yeah. Because you're talking about the industry essentially going from being a two-horse race, which it's been since probably the 60s when Marvel came around. Mm. Now it's it's a three-horse race. And Image are gobbling up market share. And that directly hurts Marvel sales. Mm. 1994, Jim Lee's Wildcats becomes an animated cartoon series with its own toy line. Jim Lee finally gets what he's, you know, what what he was not a part of with the X-Men cartoon series. 1995, Savage Dragon becomes animated series with a toy line. Uh, 95, also The Max uh, becomes an MTV animated series. Smaller scale, but still. 1997, we get both the Spawn movie toy line, but also the HBO adult Spawn animated series coming mm. out. Um, completely different vibe and tone, but a big, big, big year for Image. The success of Image Comics has a huge culture-shifting effect on the comic book industry. It proved that when an artist stops working on, you know, the Spider-Man characters and wants to do something of his own, creator-owned comics and characters could be more than just little niche things that only a small handful of people would buy. Image proved that writers and artists could break away from Marvel and DC and publish big, profitable comics of their own, change their own destiny. Maybe not to the extent that the founders ever did, but still. Before long, other creators were flocking to Image to use it as a safe haven, a publisher for their own comics, their own ideas. Some guys that had self-published for years and years and years, like Jeff Smith with his Bone series, came to Image and said, I want to be part of this infrastructure. I've been doing this on my own. Can I have, you know, we bring it here. I've already got a track record. I just need help with the publishing. Done. And other artists followed in, in the Image founders' footsteps and set up their own little publishing houses with like Dark Horse and other publishers and things. McFarlane's Spawn is easily the most successful of the Image um, comics characters. The movie, the HBO series, six video games... Ooh, okay. It, it had a video game uh, in '95, yeah. um, another one in ni- two in '97, one in 1999, mm. and then the Spawn character turns up in a variety of different fighting games as a new character and stuff. Yeah, I saw uh, the the recent Mortal Kombat games. They got like Spawn, the Xenomorph from Alien, Rambo, Terminator, Robocop. Think Red. about what that says. It, it says, says Spawn is yeah. at a level with those iconic yeah. movie characters, right? Yeah. Um, McFarlane, in 1994, McFarlane um, is working with Mattel Toys to produce action figures, and he hates it because they're not doing what he wants <laughs> them to do. He's not satisfied with the models they bring him. Yeah. So he takes the toy rights back, 
And Todd McFarlane starts his own toy company. Ooh. In three months, they've sold 2.2 million action figures nationwide. Bloody hell. McFarlane Toys immediately becomes renowned for producing high-quality, highly detailed action figures, unlike anything else in the more kiddified toy companies. Um, So it's what your more discerned, like, teens to young adults to adult collectors want. Um, The... The the first so they they pretty quickly off the off the bat um with, with the success of Spawn figures get the rights to make Simpsons toys ah oh, okay that's, action that's figures for an older audience they yeah. then start making detailed action figures for Rock Legends they have a Kiss line they have a Beatles line um and they do all the different outfits the iconic outfits and face paints and costumes you can get the Sergeant Pepper Beatles and you can get the 60s Beatles and you can get the uh on the top of the roof at the very end Beatles right they sign deals with um sporting to do action figures based on sporting legends from the NFL the NBA the NBL and they begin making classic uh, horror movie characters. I, I collected um, the classic horror movie characters um, from McFarlane Toys. Um, Ghostface and Michael Myers yeah. and, and all of those and Freddy. Um, I just uh, just did a Google search and this is all the stuff you see when you go into... Uh, yeah, they're massive. They're huge. And you go to Forbidden Planet, it's just, yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. And anywhere that does that kind of thing, you would have those kind of toys. Tom McFarlane parlayed... Image Comics and Spawn into creating a multi-million dollar media empire. His toy company now makes the DC comic action figures. Right? Mm. Um, He has a production company that made music videos for Pearl Jam, Ozzy Osbourne, Disturbed... Do you remember Freak on a Leash by Korn? That's... He... Like, his production company made that music video. Oh, no way! Oh, is that why... Yeah. Wait, is that the... is, Is that the same animation style as the Spawn HBO... Series. Similar, yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I recognise the animation style from. Yeah, Todd McFarlane is personally worth several hundreds of millions of dollars. Something that no other Marvel artist, no other superhero artist can claim. He ran with this, this little idea that Rob Liefeld had. He took it and ran with it. And what happened in Image Comics' wake to Marvel? That's the key. That's the important thing we're talking about. Image took a huge chunk out of Marvel's profits, and that and and its and its uh, stock plummeted after the brain drain, and it caused it's really bad news for Marvel. So Marvel in the, in the late eighties had been bought up by New World Entertainment, and as we've discussed before, New World Entertainment is owned by an investment banker called Ron Perlman, not that <laughs> one, Ronald Perlman. <laughs> His approach to Marvel was expand, expand, expand. Mm. And some investment bankers, I'm not saying Ron Perlman had this track record, because I don't know if this is a litigious thing that could come back and haunt me. But some investment (laughs) bankers have this history of buying up a whole bunch of companies, right? Mm. And using whatever debt is piled onto a company doesn't matter, because you just filed Chapter 11 at the end. Mm. And the meanwhile, you try and expand and expand and expand. And the profit... So companies need other companies to get stuff done. Yeah. You can buy a company uh, and make your other companies the exclusive clients and customers of that company. And you Mm. can pump profit out of one company into others. Debt racks up in one company and you can close that company down. (sighs) 
I don't know if Ron Perlman has a track record of that because I don't know enough about it. And I'm not pump saying, and dump? I am not saying he does. I don't think so. That's to do with stock. Oh, um, to do with stock, okay. But Perlman's approach was, was having Marvel publish way too many comics. <laughs> and he also had Marvel buy up the trading card companies and the sticker companies that used to make Marvel trading cards and stickers. So Marvel mm. now owned a trading card company and a sticker company that it probably couldn't afford. In 1995, Marvel reports its first annual loss, um, mm. which is attributed mainly to the company's massive size and a and a, the market is shrinking because the speculators have realised these comics are never going to be worth anything. Oh no, what have we done? And they're leaving, they're, they're not buying things in pallets and crates anymore. They're going. So the market, the superhero market, is shrinking. 1996, Marvel lay off 275 employees. Ooh. On, on, in one day. And then in 1996, Marvel are in trouble. Mm. The comic book industry is crashing. And they no longer have the market share they used to have because now it's a three-horse race. Comic book shops are dying out of business left, right, and center. And the, the that spark and that energy that Marvel had in the late 80s, early 90s, that was snuffed out with the rebellion of 1991. So in 1996, Marvel Comics go groveling back to the image founders. Ask them to come back to Marvel as part of a huge deal where they would hand over their most iconic characters to to Image for Image to reboot. The pitch was, we've got Iron Man, Cap, Hulk, Avengers, Fantastic Four. All of the comic, all of their sales are failing, and they desperately need some reinvigoration. We want all the Image founders to take the characters, reboot them. You can't get a more definitive, clear sign of victory than that. <laughs> that is the white flag being waved. Mm. But after hearing the pitch, the only people interested... I mean, Tom McFarlane's so busy with this empire and left, right... The others, the others are busy left, right, and centre. Jim Lee and Rob Leefield are the only ones that are interested in the deal. And it becomes known as Heroes Reborn. The end of the Onslaught saga... Iron Man, Cap, Hulk, Avengers, Fantastic Four all die. They're killed off in the regular Marvel Universe. And Jim and Rob start a brand new universe with rebooted versions of these classic characters. And it's essentially Image does the Marvel Universe. Mm. It's not very well thought of. It was universally panned by critics. But the sales (laughs) were big. Um, And then December 27th, 1996... The Marvel Group of Companies files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The company won't be saved from bankruptcy until June of 1998 when it is merged with another uh, big company, Toy Biz, the toy company. During his time in charge of Marvel, Ron Perlman is accused of diverting over $500 million out of Marvel and into his other companies. A lawsuit is is brought against Ron Perlman for these practices, which he settles out of court. So we don't know the details, but he... Oh, no, he didn't settle out of court, because we do know... We know that he paid $80 million in 2008 um, to settle that lawsuit 
the man Ooh. that bankrupted Marvel. We love hearing from you guys. You can always drop us a line to the email address marvelversusmarvel at gmail.com or you can uh, tweet to us, find out all sorts of what's going on and get involved on Twitter where we are at Marvel versus Will. You have a rather sizable sack today. <laughs> so do you. So do you. Uh- <laughs> We've lost him. We've lost him. <laughs> oh, so sorry. <clears throat> Rob Tom said about Spawn, uh, I had watched a couple of animated episodes done by McFarlane on DVD a little bit before and was super excited for this at the time. So here's a majorly rose-tinted view. Yes, the CGI is incredibly bad. Hell is probably the worst CGI committed to celluloid. Yeah, it really, it really is. is, Rob. It really is. It is. The suit movement had major Ninja Turtles vibes, but... Best bit of this film is an absolute cracking turn by Jog Leguizamo as uh, Violator, applying all of the scenery chewing required. And that soundtrack, I was a big Judgment Night fan. The album, obviously, that film is Bulls. And the concept of a big beat rack... Rock, uh, rap rock crossover was peak late 90s for me but while half of it is the she it it, it so while half of it is the sheeny put your teeth in poli- put your teeth in is is the sheeny polished pop style stuff you would expect like filter dust brothers incubus gray boy there is some absolute insanity on the album that would have never have been conceived of for any other project. Henry Rollins with Goldie, Stabbing West with Henry Josh Rollins Wick. with Goldie is just madness, yeah. Yeah, and the absolute magnificence that is combining Slayer and Atari Teenage Riot. So yeah, it was terrible, but very fond of it nonetheless. Thank you, Rob. I agree that album is just this unique little oddity, and I, I'm, I'm sure I re- remembered some of them from the time, um, but I, I, I listened back to it in preparation for this episode, and yeah, I just had a great nostalgia-filled. Um, yeah, it was just really interesting. It was really unique. In in in, you know, soundtracks now are just songs, aren't they? This is a project. It was cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve Fitzpatrick uh, talked about the film. Sent uh, wrote to us about the film. Said, "I never heard of the comic. I remember being very excited for the film because it looked cool, and then very disappointed when it came out. But can't remember why." Might have been something to do with finding John Leguizamo irritating. Uh, obviously, the, the, these people are split on this because yeah. I'm I'm with Rob. John Leguizamo yeah, is the best thing about this movie. Yes, the clown is the is uh, well. Let's say the best. It's the most interesting. It's the most interesting, it's and so like the most amount of effort that's gone into that. If that makes sense, and the costume. Yeah. I think the costume is brilliant. It's really great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Arthur Mansfield liked the soundtrack to the film. Uh, the soundtrack was a delightful oddity, a pretty decent fl- blend of metal and electronic styles that new metal could have learnt from, but sadly did not. Most of what <laughs> we're talking about is the soundtrack. I think that's that is an indicator of what this movie is like. Yeah, very few films have a soundtrack that surpass them, one of them being Hackers. Uh, Julian got in touch to praise us. Hi guys, you have been instrumental in keeping me sane and laughing through so many hard days. I have a high-stress job as a veterinary nurse at a speciality clinic and work 10 to 12-hour days. As soon as I leave, my earbuds go in and I can relax while listening to you two deep dive into the Marvelverse. It will be a little while until I can join the Do the Right Thing tier 
but I am looking forward to the day I can access that oh-so-tantalizing full-length bonus episodes. Thank you very much. Welcome aboard, then, Julian. Welcome to the uh, the, the the verse of what do we call the the verse of verse. That's what we call our little family. The verse of verse. Um, <laughs> you know, you're you're starting to do the right thing, and that's what we want. That's what we need. We need people to uh, recognize um, that uh, we bring to you guys so much, and it's great to hear um, that we can. It's a shame you can't listen to us for the ten to twelve hours a day at work, uh, Julian. Um, just write a note to your boss. See if they'll let you do that. Yeah. Um, who else we got, Will? We got Peter J. who got in touch. Peter J. got in touch. Hi, guys. It's been a while. Let me just start by saying your episodes go from strength to strength. These last few have been amazing. The Kang Saga, the Kang Dynasty, Black Panther, with a great amount of historical context to boot, Doom War, all excellent. And not to forget Obscure Marvel, which is a lot of fun. And another live show, too, which I'm really looking forward to. Now... You are doing Spawn, Image Comics, and Marvel Bankruptcy. All of this came about in the early 90s, right at a a point in time when I was having this kind of, I'm too old to be reading comics crisis. I mean, that's just not true. If it entertains you and you're not harming anyone, then just do it. Anyway, Image came... Peter's right, PJ's right, but I remember certainly feeling the same pull at that time of, I can't be reading this stuff, I need to be reading things about death and violence and shagging because i'm <laughs> trying to be grown up um, grown up and you can kind of i think you feel that that pull at a certain age but perhaps oh, it'll be completely absolutely. different now that superheroes are mainstream i don't know i don't know whether youngsters feel that anymore but i certainly did um yeah, way back in the ancient days of the 90s yeah that makes sense Anyway, Image came along and kind of showed me that there was a whole host of things out there, comics-wise, and that it was not just Marvel and DC, and that in turn kept me reading Marvel Comics. And buying some oddball stuff from the likes of Piranha Press and Nerve Gum, which I'm pretty sure don't exist anymore. And now when people give me that, you're old and read comics look, I get to ask them what their favourite movies are, and most of the time, they list a bunch of movies adapted from a comic book. (laughs) I've had this same thing happen to me yeah. before. Like someone goes, "Oh, I don't like uh, comics," uh, and then they say, "Like, oh, I really like The Walking Dead." I'm like, "Hmm, fun, fun, fun fact about that." <laughs> I, I, I just like how there's zero different. Like, like, like mm. what? What? Oh, yeah, so Mission Impossible is so much better than Avengers. Is it? Why? <laughs> Why is watching a Mission Impossible film better than reading a comic? What is the difference in that? Because exactly. if, if these people were saying, oh, well, I don't, I don't watch television, I don't watch any blockbuster movies, all I do is go to the theatre and read read poetry, then, all right, cool, beans. It's not, yeah, yeah. But, okay, it's not for everybody, but yeah. And I, I don't know, I think some of that attitude is going away these days. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope it completely goes away. Stop this. What, what do we say? No gatekeeping. And that hashtag no gatekeeping, yeah. Hashtag no snobbery, unless <laughs> it's really justified. <laughs> he continues. And not just MCU movies either. There's a ton of movies out there that started life as a comic book. Sorry, I'm getting off right, to- right off topic here. Spawn, the movie. Is this film great? Probably not. Do I love it anyway? Yes. I knew, <laughs> I knew he'd love this. He likes all the crap. He just loves it. He snuffles his, <laughs> he snuffles right in that trough. Is a lot of that based on nostalgia for that point in time? Yes. Is the CGI bad? Yes. Are the sets great? Yes, I think so. I can't remember them being good. The alley, etc. 
look, I like it. It feels like an art project to me. Someone wanted to make a movie and they wanted to get all the art house with it. And I love that because I'm totally an artsy twat. Also, what was round at the time? There was probably a Batman movie and one of the Black Scorpion movies, The Phantom and Steel, Blade, of course. It probably sits right in the middle of these films as an average. But it did spawn an animated series, uh, which I really liked. Sorry, that's a bit of a ramble. Basically, Image Comics showed me that there was a whole other world of comics and printed media out there. And without that, I'm not sure I would have continued to read comics, something that I truly love to this day. Anyway, keep up the great work. Thank you, Peter J. And that's a really excellent point um, b- because um, you need these things to grow up with you. And if it it was, it's a rocky, it's a rocky kind of sea of change. And yes, yes, there are these kind of um, genre shifting moments like the Watchmen comic book and the Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. and stuff. But that doesn't always filter down to meaning that we get. M- vastly more sophisticated stories in spider-man superman or regular batman you know and if you feel like you've grown or aged out of those stories you could leave comics forever so image image does play this this kind of big role of and i I, like image was a huge part of my teen years um from wildcats savage i adored savage dragon and read it for years and years and years after i left a load of other image stuff behind um but then, even even with the kind of the second wave that that Jim Lee brought in with things like, um, you know, Gen Thirteen, and then there was mm. all that kind of stuff. Like the, the they they were just they felt like they were for more for my age group than yeah. Spider Man was at the, at the time or whatever. And so yeah, these the things that can keep you reading comics. Yeah. Um, I want to give some big shout-outs now, Peter J, as we just heard from. Brandon Schmigilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Bass DeBeer, Sam, Bindi, Soupy, Jack Davis, Billy Brown. That is a growing list. That is a growing list. Uh, speaking of growing list, we've got two more letters to go through. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were done with letters. I was there going like, do I, do I, do I make the signal at him and stop the podcast again? <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna. You should just interrupt me and said, no, not yet. We got two more letters to get to. I apologise. Get letters. to the letters. Just, just to let you know that we got a lot of letters in this month. Uh, Jack Davis wrote in to say, just wanted to say thank you for all your hard work. You make the best podcast out of all of them, not just the superhero genre. Such rich information, and it's all comprehensive and concise. I genuinely feel like me and Will are ignorant, beady-eyed little children sat around a campfire listening to Rob Uatu the Watcher Holden telling stories. That's how I view it as well, Jack. Yes, well done. (laughs) Well put. Bloody perfection. Again, thank you so, so much, and sorry it took me so long to do the right thing. Can't wait to see you live on the 25th. Yes, I hope, yes, very much hope. I think when this comes out, the 25th will have been and gone but mm. currently as we record it it has not so yes we're looking forward to see you as well jack um yeah and everyone that manages to come along to that live show um okay who else we got then uh will finally we've got phoenix phil who said my 10 year old son luke listens to mvm every night at bedtime you guys help him relax with all the facts and funny stuff phoenix phil and his son luke to the people that really helped us out with the mm. uh, paying attention to what's going on with our own podcast which we should have known that shout out again is Peter J, Branch Bagilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Bastabeer, Sam Bindi, Soupy, Jack Davis, Billy Brown. Who are they, Will? The world class wrecking crew. <laughs> the yeah. top supporters of this podcast. 
that give and then give even more so that it starts to hurt. Um, and, uh, you know, as they should. They help keep the yep. lights on. Um, as we said, at the moment, we are entirely funded and supported by the people and not by intrusive adverts because we finally turned that button off. But I think it's appropriate, Will. Yes. about this, I think it's appropriate in this Spawn episode about making a deal with the devil to ask... What is your soul worth to you? <laughs> what is it worth? Because right now, that soul of yours, listener, is dirty. It's full of sin. Full of crimes. Audio <laughs> crimes. The sin of not supporting this podcast the way you know you should be. The sin of not doing the right thing. Every week, listener, you're gobbling up hours and hours of Marvel history and trivia and stories. You're gobbling up all the hard work that me and Will put into this podcast. You're gobbling it up, right? Everything that me and Willie P lay on the table, you're gobbling up like the Marvel podcast glutton that you are, and then you burp (laughs) and don't even say thank you. You're full of sin. Full of it. Uh, You can, however, cleanse that soul for the low, low price of just three English pounds a month. Salvation has never been cheaper. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can support this podcast. You can get rid of all that guilt. You can cleanse yourself and be a full member of this community. Guilt-free. It's not a deal with the devil on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel but if it was a deal with the devil we tempt you with the rewards for your gluttonous soul rewards up and down in exchange for your cash (laughs) rewards like mini shows that come out every month early access to every single show full length bonus episodes that deep dive marvel stories exclusive video content that's what bl's a rob (laughs) (laughs) and will are offering in this deal there are 65 bonus episodes available right now this month we took a look at uh, this month being March. Wakanda Doom War spinning mm. out of our Black Panther mega show. Well, man, without giving away any spoilers, this was <laughs> something else. This was perhaps the biggest Black Panther story I can think of. Um, with your thoughts on on Wakanda Doom War? Oh, it's huge! Absolutely huge. There was a lot of political intrigue and lots of twists. It was incredible. It's an incredible saga. It's another story where you've been really imp- impressed by military tactics of villains. <laughs> yeah, in a worrying way. It, it, it's one of those things we go, "Oh, that's horrible," but 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 clever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we we came out of it um, with a, a a completely transformed Wakanda, mm. um, and it's it's a massive, big story. And we like to do those ones that tie in to uh, the, the main show episodes when we can. Next month, however. There's no tie-in. We're just going for the sugary, saccharine, like the most most gluttonous thing we can think of. To celebrate the anniversary, the third year anniversary, we're bringing you a deep dive into Amalgam Comics. You might not know what Amalgam Comics is. It is a time when Marvel and DC Comics didn't just work together 
they merged their universes. We've got <laughs> brand new timeline, the Amalgam Universe, featuring merged characters. Wolverine and Batman became Dark Claw. Superman and Spider Boy become Spider Boy. Iron Man and Green Lantern become the Iron Lantern, and so much more. That's what we. And I know you're you're really intrigued by this, aren't you, Will? Oh, incredibly intrigued. It sounds mad. It's yeah. not like it shouldn't exist. And we're going to take a look at the DC versus Marvel event that started it. Um, it's it's going to be really big, and it's exclusive to us on Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. That's the deal you can make with Beelzerob. You shake my fiery yeah. hand. You get access to 32 full-length bonus episodes. You can get access early access to every show. You can get access to 29 mini-shows on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. You need to cleanse your soul. Do the right thing. On the other side of this break, Will, it's the patented MVM Deep Dive. (laughs) 